have an army, okay, as a, as a soldier and as a, as, a, uh, as a general, as a retired general, we have an army of digital soldiers. What we are now, what, what we call, I call them, because this was an insurgency, folks. This was run like an insurgency. This was irregular warfare at its finest in politics. And that, that story will, will continue to be told here. But we have what we call citizen journalists. Okay? Because, the, because the, the journalists that we have in our media did a disservice to themselves, actually more than they did to this country. They did a disservice to themselves because they displayed an arrogance that is unprecedented. And so the American people decided to take over the idea of information. They took over the idea of information. We have an army of digital soldiers. We have an army of digital soldiers. We have an army of digital soldiers, 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 soldiers. Hello. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host for today, Robbie Martin. Think of this episode as a spiritual sequel to our QAnon two-parter episode from several months ago. And on this episode, I am very excited to interview someone who comes up a lot in discussions about QAnon these days, and who's discussed quite a lot when you read stories about QAnon, and who had some first-hand knowledge in part of the QAnon timeline. And that person is Frederick Brennan, the founder of A-Chan. So first... What I'm going to do in this episode is play you my interview with Frederick Brennan. Now, Frederick Brennan had firsthand interactions with people like Jim Watkins, Ron Watkins, and these other people who ran 8chan at the time that QAnon was posting on 8chan. Frederick Brennan, in a nutshell, believes that at least at the time of 8chan taking on the QAnon identity, or at least part of the time, and definitely the time that QAnon started posting on Acun, that he believes that Jim and Ron Watkins were involved in QAnon. He's not certain that they were posting as QAnon, but he believes they were fully in control of it. But essentially, this entity QAnon started on the image board 4chan. It eventually migrated over to the image board 8chan, and from there it migrated over to the image board 8kun. Between the time of leaving 8chan and going to 8kun, I believe that 8chan was taken offline. And Frederick Brennan claims responsibility for making that happen. And you can hear a little bit about why in this interview. Now, in the past... I personally didn't quite understand the theory of why people believed Jim Watkins or Ron Watkins was behind Q. 
I initially disagreed with this theory when I heard it being floated around in different media stories about it. But after interviewing Frederick, I'm fairly convinced that they are definitely in control of the Q identity in some regard. Now, Frederick Brennan doesn't necessarily go into the political aspect of this or the Trump administration's various figures, including Trump himself promoting Q or what that means. And that's, I think, an angle that I would like to explore a little more after we listen to this interview that I conducted with Frederick Brennan. Now, the interview is about an hour and 16 minutes long. So if you want to go straight to my own analysis about Q, skip forward about an hour and 16 minutes. But I highly recommend you listen to the whole episode because this adds a lot of necessary context to the image board, the Chan board, history and origins of QAnon, which is a very important angle that I didn't really explore in my QAnon two-parter. And you get a really close and intimate inside look into what that community was like in this interview. So here's my interview with Frederick Brennan. So Frederick, tell me a little bit about your personal journey on the internet as a young man. And if you were even politically engaged at that time, like if you were, you know, not just necessarily involved in like the presidential races or, or like, you know, the horse race kind of aspect of politics, but what was, did you have like a political ideology when you were, that you can recall when you were like as young as 12 years old, you started using 4chan? Yeah. So I don't know necessarily that I had a very well fleshed out political ideology at 12 years old. I'm going to say probably not. Um, I remember, I guess my earliest memory about politics would be being very angry for some reason that my dad voted for George W. Bush the second time, but not being actually able to explain why. I was mad about that. Um, I, yeah, I, I guess maybe it was uh, influence from teachers in school or influence from TV. I don't, I don't necessarily know. Uh, anti-war stuff, maybe in elementary school, middle school. I don't know, but I do remember being very angry that my dad voted for Bush, and I thought he shouldn't, and. I thought he should have voted for Kerry, and I don't necessarily know why. Um, and how old were you see. at that time? That was like 2004, right? Or I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah, that was like 2004, so I would have been 10. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I would have been 10. Uh, I want to say that by the time I started ascribing political labels to myself, I was like 14, 15, 16, around that age, and probably I would have described myself as right-wing libertarian for almost my entire life, pretty much, you know. Okay. I kind of found that one and stuck to it for a lot of years. Like, for example, the first election that I could vote in uh, was the Republican primary election in 2012, and I voted for Ron Paul. I'm one of okay. the very 
few Republican primary voters that voted for Ron Paul. I did as well, um, actually. I will. Oh, okay. I will acknowledge. So that that's interesting yeah. that you had a um, you identified as right or libertarian or right libertarian at that time. Uh, like, how were there any other libertarian figures that influenced you at that age? Like you said, fourteen, fifteen, you started to identify that way. Can you remember anyone besides Ron Paul that you? followed or that was an influence on you at that time yeah i don't know if he's necessarily that libertarian now but at the time he definitely was stefan molyneux was very libertarian yeah. back then yeah uh he he was a lot more like into anarchy that kind of thing back then and now mm-hmm. he is it's pretty sad to see that he has gone you know full trumpist just because that's <laughs> how he's found a way to make a living or rather not now that he's kicked off of everything but yeah yeah, well, it's kind of interesting. I mean, you seem to have an awareness of how some of those those people in political culture went to Trumpism, and I I don't I don't think I was following Stephen Molyneux back then, but I was definitely into Ran, uh, Ron Paul. I remember being very hopeful about Rand Paul when he came onto the scene, and then being disappointed very quickly. But it is interesting how so many of those people went so far into Trumpism. And I guess just as a side note, do you see that more as financially motivated, like trying to increase their career, you know, their presence online, like for clickbait? Or do you see it as something there? There's a pathway there that makes sense to you to go into Trumpism from some sort of ideological reason. I, I think there are a few ways to look at it. Of course, a lot of it has to be financial. But another way to look at it, especially with people like Molyneux, is they kind of over time see that their objectivist hyper-libertarian project is not going anywhere in the public discourse. Mm -hmm. And rather than stick hard and fast to that, like, you know, Joe Jorgensen, for example, or a, uh, uh, God, Gary something, the previous libertarian Johnson, Gary Johnson. Gary Johnson. (laughs) Wow. I forgot. Is that forgettable? Um, in any event, (laughs) uh, they instead of going that way, they see Trumpism as a way to kind of get their ideas on a more mainstream footing. And I think a lot of different far right um a lot of different far right groups see that in Trump. Like it's not only the libertarians like Manu who see that. It's also the Nazis who see that. Mm-hmm. They see Trumpism as like a way that they can spread their own ideology. So what a lot of them do is they will pick and choose which aspects of Trumpism best speak to their far right beliefs. Like, for example, if it's a neo-Nazi group, they're going to heavily focus on Trump's anti-immigration stuff and they'll pretty much entirely ignore his foreign policy, you know, to the best of their ability. Mm -hmm. Right. Because if a neo-Nazi group were to, you know, uh, look into Trump's foreign policy. I mean, it is basically not very easy to differentiate from, say, George W. Bush's, right? It's a very yeah. pro-Israel foreign policy. So, um, and just like that, when it comes to Molyneux, he can look at it as, well, Donald Trump is very pro-Second Amendment, very pro-First Amendment, you know, very pro-liberty. That's what he would call it, those two things, right? So I think... Trump is this perfect kind of image for the far right in that they can paint 
whatever Trump they want, because Trump is not necessarily even about getting anything done. I mean, he got other than Supreme Court justices, I want to say almost nothing done, mm-hmm. especially nothing that could be reversed. Yeah, no, that's a very interesting observation. I mean, you articulated it in a way that I haven't really thought about it before that this it's almost like Trump is a useful vehicle to project, you know, what they what they want, what far right beliefs they have that they want to see become mainstream or more prominent. And Trump is somehow the vehicle to make that happen. But then right, you see this, you see this most when, for example, it happens a lot on the right when one of them gets uh, tired of Trump or dissatisfied with Trump about something and they make the. Uh, Cernovich, for example, is a great example of this recently, where he is just, you know, pummeling Trump online for not going hard enough against the so-called voter fraud. Right. And when you look at, you know, for example, uh, Robert Spencer. Right. Look at Robert Spencer. Look at other far right fingers. Uh, Molyneux, for example. I mean, I remember a Molyneux quote where he stated that this is the last election where we're going to be able to make a difference because pretty soon there won't be enough white people. That was his entire argument. And, <laughs> you know, a more Latinos went for Trump than at any other previous time, which I'm sure certain Republican strategy people that were advising Rubio are just totally dumbstruck by that fact. But, um, yeah, I, I do think that Donald Trump and his, uh, ability to appeal broadly to the far right without actually giving any of them what they want is one of his biggest strengths. Absolutely. I I completely agree with that. And that, I guess, before we dive into the QAnon subject, I wanted to ask you about what it was like being on 4chan during some of like your formative early teenage years. And if you remembered seen the rise of conspiracy theories happening in your time on 4chan did you see that becoming more trendy because i i only started reading about you know like i mostly got my crash course in 4chan and 8chan like when the media started talking about it in the trump era and i sort of had a retroactive understanding that a lot of conspiracy theories got popular there but my from my personal political upbringing, it was mostly Alex Jones, where the where I was hearing most of the conspiracies from. Tell me a little bit about how you saw conspiracy theories or just conspiracies in general become more trendy on 4chan, or did they become more trendy? And then also, you know, if you were into Ron Paul in uh, 2012, you also probably knew about Alex Jones. And what was your opinion about him at the time? Were you a follower of his? Sure, I'll take on those two topics. So... 4chan, at least in my experience and the boards that I went to, there were two broad trends. So the first broad trend was it went farther and farther right as the years went on. I want to say that when I first started using 4chan, let's say around 2006, that that area, there were not very many far right users on 4chan, especially not that many serious far right users. Like, there were racist posters, but I would not say that there was active far-right propaganda spreading or active far-right, like a vehicle or, or any of that on 4chan in the very beginning. 
the most racist that things got were like racist jokes that you weren't allowed to tell, but you know, uh, people found funny on 4chan. So uh, over time though, I started to see that more and more people were using 4chan as a vehicle to kind of indoctrinate people into far right beliefs and sort of the meme culture kind of helps with that because it picks more and more kind of emotionally inflammatory memes until you have like the perfect paragraph or the perfect two paragraphs to maybe not change someone's opinion on immigration but to get them thinking in a different way about it and that's usually all that far-right people are trying to do is to just get you thinking in a different way about an issue that you had considered settled. I mean, um, in my personal experience, that's how it worked with me with the topic of eugenics, which is the topic that's pretty close to my uh, heart just due to my um, disability. So how that started with me was, you know, they get you thinking about the idea of eugenics in a different way so they don't necessarily like a single 4chan post is not enough to change somebody from having a mainstream belief to a far-right fringe belief but once you read enough of these posts and you engage in enough debate with people and you know they all know all of the talking points that starts to gradually gradually shift your ideas and part of the experience of being on 4chan is that you feel like there is a collective hive and a collective truth that is believed generally by the users of the board. Mm -hmm. And there are always users that are going to have an opinion that's outside of what is the collectively accepted, like, this is a fact. But far-right users were very good at shifting that farther and farther right, especially nationalist users um i would say that as far as like libertarianism goes that really peaked in 2012 on 4chan Mm -hmm. and 4chan with an o there uh there's a whole backstory to why that existed but um (laughs) after that it became much more about like race racism white genocide that whole thing and a lot of influencers that are very popular now got their start on like early 2010s 4chan. Uh, Ramsey Paul is one of them. He is, I want to say, one of the kind of racist pioneers of 4chan. um, Interesting. In a lot of respects, because he became popular in like 2011 on 4chan and 4chan. Uh, Another thing that I noticed, which you mentioned, is that image board users as a collective became less and less able to differentiate fact from fiction. Uh, This was something that I noticed more and more over the years, because if you would have asked me in, say, 2013, if an image board community could be totally duped by something like Q, I would have said definitely not. Yeah. That image board users are better, like, that there is wisdom in the crowd, so-called, and that image board users as a collective can very easily tell when they're being lied to, and they can very easily differentiate fact from fiction, and that image board users as a collective 
do actually do meaningful research, right? Like those were beliefs that I held. Yeah. And that the research that image board users collectively do can have some benefits in the world, right? If I didn't believe those things, I wouldn't have found it 8chan. So to see image board users kind of as a collective go off the deep end in many ways and start believing in things that are just patently untrue um, was surprising. I, I kind of want to narrate the history of the different 4chan politics boards because it's uh, a bit notable, but I don't know how much time you have. I mean, it seems like Sandy Hook was a was a prominent sort of turning point for, I mean, and maybe that's just the way the mainstream media has described it, but it also seems to be partly true that Sandy Hook it took a lot of this, you know, like it, it, it really caught fire on places like 4chan and some of these other places and it sort of created this yeah, almost... Yeah, you can look at it that way, but you also have to look at what was going on at 4chan at the time. Well, so, and also, yeah, tell me about that, but also tell me if there was anything uh, before Sandy Hook that you can recall that also caught fire as a conspiracy theory. Oh, great question. Um, oh, well, yeah, the Hurricane Sandy looting, that wasn't actually happening. That really caught fire on 4chan, and people were posting... Um, videos of so-called looters that weren't actually looters. They were just people walking, you know, and saying this guy stole what he's carrying. And that caught fire on, on 4chan. Yeah. So there were like racist conspiracy theories that you remember. Yeah. That are. Yeah. Interesting. Um, okay. A nine 11 truth was also pretty big on, on these boards, even though they didn't exist during nine 11 itself. Uh, things that would happen in the 9-11 truther community would get picked up by these boards. But um, the reason Sandy Hook is such a good kind of starting point is because, okay, so in the very beginning, there is no politics board on 4chan. Okay. The board that gets added is one called N for news and politics. And the rules of that board were such that you had to actually post a mainstream media article to open a thread. If you didn't do that, users would kind of shun your thread. You could get banned by the moderators if they were around. It was a generally accepted standard by users of the board that if you wanted to post on 4chan's news board, you needed to link it to a mainstream source. And you needed to have a source and you needed to even transcribe some of the articles. So copy and paste it. Um, and as time went on. So in 2010, Christopher Poole decided to delete two boards from 4chan, the R9K board and then the news board N. And those went to an alternate site for a year called 4chan.net with an O. And while they were over on 4chan, they got more and more racist because they were separated from kind of the 4chan moderators okay. who were kind of moderating a lot of that activity. And, for example, the guy that was running 4chan.net, he was a racist himself, and he didn't care necessarily. Like, it was it is an official rule on 4chan that you will not post racist stuff outside of the B-board. A lot of people don't know that, but it is actually a rule of 4chan. It's not often followed anymore, but back then it kind of was. Uh, the news discussion didn't usually on 4chan have overt racist propaganda as part of the news. 
Um, but on 4chan, people started posting more and more news that would look like something out of the Daily Stormer. And, okay. you know, they would start editorializing the headlines. So maybe the local affiliate would report it as, you know, uh, two youths rob store, uh-huh. hold up owner, like that. You know, they would, the user editorializing it would write, you know, two N-words, hold up, white shop owner, and steal everything in the store, basically. Um, Got it, okay. So uh, that kind of editorializing wouldn't have happened on 4chan. And eventually Poole decided to bring back those two boards, but the way that he decided to bring the news board back is kind of, even though it seems like a very small decision at the time, it had a lot of impact in terms of what the board was seen by the users as being for. Because he invented poll, Christopher Poole did. There was no poll before that. Okay. And he decided to call it politically incorrect instead of politics. So it seemed to be like he was calling it, this is a place for racism. So yeah. after that, there was no more requirement that you have to link to a mainstream source to open a thread. You can actually open a thread just about Nazi propaganda. It doesn't have to be news anymore. You know, it just has to be politics, which is like everything. So um, I feel like uh, they were very small decisions, but they kind of shifted the community, like on the administrator side also, not just on the community side. So when we start getting into like 2013 and poll is, you know, kind of in, in its first year um, and Sandy Hook happens, well, there's no more requirement, like I said, that you link to a mainstream source. Yeah. You can start a thread just with a conspiracy theory. And that's why Sandy Hook caught way bigger fire than anything previously, because over on the end board, which I was a very, very, very heavy user of, you at least had to link some mainstream source. Mm-hmm. to start your thread. And um, over on 4chan poll, it wasn't like that. And then, you know, obviously 8chan poll it took things even in a more radical direction because just like how on Reddit, the users are moderating the board, it gave control to neo-Nazis to moderate their own board. Yeah. And at this time, do you remember, like, was 4chan friendly to alex jones was he did his stuff circulate around it did not it didn't Um, okay interesting so i want to kind of i want to put an asterisk on that alex jones himself was very unpopular in the early 2010s 4chan 4chan he was not like he was seen either as a Jewish stooge because his wife is Jewish. Mm-hmm. So he was just totally disregarded because of that. Or he was seen as what image board users call controlled opposition. So he was seen as somebody who is controlled by they, whoever they are. Some users would say the Jews, some would say the state or the deep state as it became. Um, the libertarians used to just call it the state. But in any case, uh, the surveillance state in some cases, but Alex Jones, he, he himself was not well received, but the articles on Infowars.com, which would get reprinted in other places, were well received. So it's kind of a weird dichotomy of they hate Alex Jones, but they're willing to listen to 
articles on Infowars.com. It's kind of a weird situation there. So besides, because I guess later you found out that Jim actually stole the 2chan right. message board from someone else, right? So right. besides claiming yeah. being behind this website, um, what else was it that enticed you to move halfway across the world to work with him? Because, I mean, maybe I'm, I don't know where you came from before moving to the Philippines, but it sounds like that was a big deal. I mean, I don't know how often well, you had traveled, but, like, was there something charismatic about his personality that, you know, that did he make enticing promises, uh, things like that? So I had been out of the country once before. I had been to Bogota in Colombia. Um, okay. But I had never... Oh, I'd been out twice before. I I also went to Canada while I was in foster care. But I had never um I had never spent a long time outside of the country. Like I was in Colombia for two weeks, but that was the longest I'd ever been kind of in a country where English is not the main language. Um, but after I kind of came back from Colombia and moved to New York City you know, my life was very hard there. I was having to take care of myself entirely on my own. I was having to uh, cook every meal for myself. I was having to kind of just do everything, wash my own clothes. You know, it was uh, very difficult for someone in my situation, and I didn't want to accept state help because that also by accepting the state help you you are to a degree giving up parts of your freedom let's say like yeah if you accept a state nurse who will come and take care of you let's say 24 hours a day well that nursing agency is not going to allow you to you're you're just going to have limited privacy and limited ability to have friends over and kick the nurse out, right? Of course, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I was pretty selfish, or not, I was pretty uh, stubborn about that, rather. So it was an enticing offer when Jim Watkins said, you know, I will hire a nurse to take care of you. I will give you a place to live. And... I won't expect you to pay for 8chan's hosting. I mean, it was extremely enticing because the way I had seen it was 8chan would have ended in at the latest January 2015 without somebody coming and taking it over. I mean, mm-hmm. at the latest, latest, latest. Like, it may have even ended, you know, December 2014 because... And I mean, that probably would have been the best thing, honestly, if it had ended that <laughs> early, you know, looking back. But um, yeah. What a I mean, whole world of difference two more years makes, huh? I know, I know. <laughs> you know, it it would have just been kind of an interesting free speech experiment that failed. And that's what it would have been if it would have ended in 2015. And I would have probably very easily moved on. But um because it didn't end and you know i I went to the philippines uh the two ways that he sold it to me were just i will help you take care of your physical needs and i created two channel which you know is not a small deal i mean 
I knew of Two Channel even before I met Watkins. I had even posted there. I learned Japanese to an extent to be able to read messages there and post there. So it was a very important part of my decision-making process in terms of trusting them that they owned Two Channel. It wasn't a small part at all um, Mm -hmm. that, you know, if you can't say I created 4chan to say, well, I'm working with the guys who made 2channel is kind of better in certain respects because it has this kind of in modern image board users minds like a mystical Eastern aura over it. And as being a more pure quote unquote image board, you know, the original experience as it was supposed to be, it can be found on 2channel allegedly. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was not hard for them to sell it to me. Well, yeah, I mean, all that stuff sounds very enticing. And I mean, I guess the only part you didn't touch on, and maybe I didn't ask this in my question, but was was there something about his personality? Like, did he seem like a, did you click with him personality-wise? Was was he friendly? Did he, um, what, did he, or, or I, don't, I don't know, was there anything particular about his personality that, that struck you when you first met him? Or interacted with him. So, uh, Jim Watkins, I don't know that I necessarily clicked with very much in the beginning. I much more clicked with his son, Ron Watkins. Okay. Um, because his son was an image board user. He was the one that gave his dad the idea to take over 8chan. So, his son was um, a very big part of everything that goes on there. And okay. I much more got along with Ron than Jim uh, through my entire time there. But even in the beginning, right, like I talked to Ron first and Ron set up the call with Jim and I could see that like during that call, Ron is kind of steering Jim and kind of I don't want to say controlling Jim, but in some ways, yes. I mean, it's this thing that only really third parties can see in the relationships of like parents and their children, Mm -hmm. how the parent is saying one thing and the child is saying one thing and somehow what the parent is saying gets closer and closer to what the child is saying. And uh, <laughs> without the parent realizing, he's, uh, I don't want to call it manipulation, but he's definitely very good at steering his father. Let's say that. Um, now, obviously, there are times when they totally don't agree and there are, you know, red lines, but it, it, they aren't often. So, yeah, I felt like I got along very well with Ron. And if I had any problems with Jim, he would sort them out. So, uh, yeah. Fascinating. So what was the age difference between you and Ron at the time you eventually met him? And I guess how long before that were you communicating with just Ron? Like, yeah. So our age difference was only like five years. Okay. So it was much less than between myself and Jim because, you know, it was a lot harder for me to even understand Jim sometimes, you know, like what, he wants or how he views 8chan. He wasn't an 8chan user, especially in the beginning he wasn't, you know. Uh, he discovered this site through his son and then gradually kind of fell in love with it. I do believe that. But yeah, um, like it's definitely not all Ron's idea that they keep 8chan going at this point. Like it is mostly Jim at this point that's keeping things going, you know. So even if it wasn't Jim's idea at first to take over 8chan, 
when he saw having when he saw how much fun it was to have this community in English that he could actually kind of lord over because he can't really do that to the Japanese community, even though it's a much bigger community. He doesn't speak the language and he's never going to learn it. Like he's tried, I don't know how many times and never gets anywhere. You know, he's not great at all with languages and he will get frustrated. You know, I've seen him sit a translator down next to him and the translator will help him navigate his site that he owns. And he gets frustrated with the translator sometimes. So it's like, uh, it's a very weird situation over there where he runs the largest Japanese internet forum, at least at one time it was, in the world, you know, and he can't read it. <laughs> uh, yeah. His son is better at foreign languages than him, but he even... When I first met them, Ron did not speak Japanese either. He's gotten better over the years, but he only spoke um, English and Mandarin Chinese because his wife is a uh, Chinese national. Interesting. Wow. Okay, so this is putting a lot of pieces together that I didn't, I didn't fully understand uh, before talking to you. This is, um, oh, I'm really fascinated by what you're telling me. So, so I guess like, just tell me a little bit personally what it was like for you going to the Philippines and deciding to, you know, relocate there? Like, that must have been, uh, you know, was that, like, did it feel exciting to you? Was it a, quite a shock? Like, what was that whole experience like once you got it there? It was definitely, it definitely felt exciting for me to go to the Philippines, for sure. I mean, before then, I had never considered living full-time overseas. I had been to Colombia, yes, but it was never on my mind while I was in Colombia, I'm going to stay here. You know, it was always I'm visiting friends for two weeks and then I'm going home. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? Um, so when I kind of got this idea from them, you know, they explained it to me as, you know, a place where you can get more with less, essentially. That's how they sold it to me, that you can be well taken care of and work on 8chan, which is your passion all day, and you don't have to, you know, worry about breaking your arm while cooking something or whatever, or spilling boiling water on yourself or whatever. You're going to be uh, taken care of was essentially yeah. the, the core message. And yeah, and they were very quick to answer any question I might have, like, you know, immigration issues. Oh, don't worry about it. We have this guy who has friends in the Immigration Bureau and he can get anybody any visa, which, you oh, know, wow. that actually turned out to be true. Uh, yeah. Fascinating. Was there anything said to you at the time? And maybe this is just my naive understanding of why, you know, he was already in the Philippines and why he brought you there. But was there anything mentioned about like, the laws in the Philippines and how you could like do things online that could be like, you know, done from the Philippines. It couldn't be done from the U S or anything like that. So that, that wasn't mentioned. And the reason is because anti technology, the company that owns or the company that owned eight Chan, uh, until it became eight Kun And then they just gave it to another American company. Is it wet yet? Inc. They didn't really explain it in terms of like, 
you can legally do things in the Philippines that you can't do in your own country, but they did explain it as you can do things online without being harassed by, let's say, the public. So you can set up your personal life in the Philippines and there is no risk that you're going to be swatted. There is no risk that people are going to order things to your house. There is no, those kind of risks are totally gone. There's no risk that people will even like protest outside your house. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, that's happened to Jim Watkins before. So he kind of more explained it that way. And it was never explained to me as, you know, go to the Philippines and evade American law. No, because all of the domains and all of the servers were still, you know, right in California. And was there anything later on, and excuse this if this is an ignorant question, but like, was there anything later on that you felt that he was doing specifically, like, just like on a gut level where you're like, is, you know, is Jim Watkins doing something specifically to evade U.S. law? And is that why he's in the Philippines? Like at that moment? Well, ever come yeah, to when... Well, yeah, I mean, when he was trying to get Filipino citizenship and when he made it clear to me that he doesn't want to pay U.S. taxes, uh, <laughs> that, I mean, made it quite clear. I mean, he was working for years on getting Filipino citizenship. He started working, in, I want to say, 2016. So even before Trump got elected, he was working on becoming a Filipino citizen. And it's quite a process, you know, you have to get all these affidavits and you have to submit it to a government newspaper and to the official gazette, as they call it. And uh, he was very clear that that's what he wanted. And he would often, you know, even sell that idea to others in the organization, you know, to Ron Watkins, Tom Riddell, other higher ups that, hey, it might be good for all of us if, you know, we were to kind of have our businesses in the United States, but be legally Filipino citizens, you know, uh, yeah. Now, the reason that that citizenship petition didn't go anywhere was my fault. Um, after he refused to take down a chan after the uh, twin shootings in Christchurch and El Paso, I went to the citizenship hearing in person and uh, as a pro se litigant opposed. So that threw a, a huge wrench into the works and he was not able to ever remedy that even after I left the country. What was the month and year that that happened? Oh, um, the citizenship petition, uh, the citizenship hearing, I want to say, was September 2019. So one month after El Paso. I guess let's go back a little bit before Q, because I wanted to get into Q, but I wanted to ask you, you know, where were you politically at the time uh, that the 2016 election rolled around? Were you a Trump supporter at all at that time? How did you feel about Hillary Clinton? And how active were you in actually like paying attention to when Pizzagate first blew up? Um, so as far as Pizzagate is concerned, I never believed it. Um, I have always been one of the, I've always been kind of very skeptical of conspiracy theories. I 
for example, um, Mike Rothschild, who's pretty famous now in QAnon stuff for his anti uh, QAnon research, but the Daily Dot re- reporter, yeah, the Daily Dot reporter, yeah. But he is a long-term blogger about conspiracy theories, and um, I enjoyed his work even as 8chan's admin. So he was somebody I knew. Um, and, you know, uh, the Skeptical Inquirer, for example, you know, mm-hmm. was uh, another thing that I kind of identified with. So I never believed Pizzagate. It looked like nonsense to me from the beginning. Um, but politically, I didn't. I, the, the weird thing was, OK, so during the 2016 election, the first candidate that I wanted to win was Bernie Sanders. He was the first one that I wanted to win. And when he lost the primary and then a lot of the statements that came out from the DNC court case where, you know, the DNC lawyers were making legal arguments. And I understand that now. But at the time, it rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, let's say, for those attorneys to say, well, uh, actually, we could go into a back room and decide this. And, uh, you know, it rubbed a a lot of people the wrong way and it created a a kind of a whole group of leftist conspiracy theories about the 2016 election and about the primary process itself so given that that was the case you know i definitely was never a fan of hillary clinton and i viewed her as just you know more of the same what we have you know like more of just more of the same so I don't want to necessarily say that I was a Trump supporter. Like, for example, I know that um, Jim and Iran were very convinced that Trump was going to win. And usually at discussions of like the higher ups in the company, you know, Jim, Ron and Tom, it was usually Tom as neutral, Jim and Ron thinking Trump is going to win. And then my thinking is that Clinton is going to win just based on polling, mainstream, et cetera, et cetera. So it came as a genuine shock to me when Trump won. And I, you know, when it, right when it happened, I was excited about it. I remember looking at the site that Donald Trump put online after he won, like, you know, come join the Trump administration, that kind of thing. Like, you know, send us your resume. And I almost did send them a resume, um, but it didn't happen. I wanted to be some kind of uh, internet uh, something. I don't know. Yeah, right. I didn't have really any relevant experience, which is why it didn't happen. But, you know, he basically put out a call to, you know, patriots, blah, blah, blah. And obviously I didn't want to have to move back to the U.S. So there were multiple reasons that that never happened. But I mean, I mean, it's really not that After, far-fetched considering who he has invited to the White House. And I mean, yeah, he's invited I mean, people like right. Mark yeah, Dice. You're correct. <laughs> so like, yeah. you probably actually had a pretty um, good chance. <laughs> <laughs> I might have. But in any case, I, I don't want to say that like I was very specifically excited by Donald Trump himself. Okay. Like on the day of the election, uh, Jim handed out like hats, Make America Great Again hats to – uh, the people who were kind of in the office because okay. the Goldwater studio was in the office. And yes, I mean, there is a photo of me online wearing one on the day of that election because I was handed it. <laughs> but I was not ever extremely excited. 
like especially before uh, you know for me it was a, more of an after like oh this is exciting let's see what happens and you know you can kind of do that when you live in the philippines because this stuff doesn't really necessarily affect your day to day you know um i was much more affected by what duterte was doing than what you know donald trump was doing i mean yeah. unless he was to decide to recall all citizens you know it wasn't going to ever necessarily affect me. So you can kind of, and this is how they kind of view a lot of American politics. You can kind of view it as like a fun sideshow, you know, to your job. It's like a fun reality show. Like you're detached on, from you know. it. You're, you're, you're not yeah. affected by yeah. it directly. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I feel like if I was actually affected by Donald Trump, I wouldn't have had the same reaction, you know, as being excited. Oh, let's see what's going to happen now. Mm. I mean, obviously I, like a lot of people, was uh, the thing about it is we're seeing the same thing now with Biden winning. We're more excited about the guy losing than the winner. Like I'm not necessarily jived up about Biden in any respect, but I'm very excited about Donald Trump losing. It was the same case when Donald Trump won. Mm -hmm. I'm not very excited about Donald Trump himself, but I'm very excited about the fact that Hillary Clinton, despite all of the mainstream support, that she had from polling firms, from everybody lost, you know, that was what excited me. It seemed to open the door of possibilities, which is why, again, I think a lot of far right people like Trump because they see him as shifting the Overton window. Yeah. And I, and I could see if I was in your shoes at like in the Philippines, it would, it would totally make even more sense to be excited by that. I think probably I would have been, but it was like I'd the people around me were like devastated emotionally, and like I started just it was like too hard to, you know. Right, like, I get it. I mean, if I was still living in New York City, it would have been totally different. Yeah, no, I. I but it, everybody around me was just super excited. You know, Jim yeah. and Ron. I mean, Jim Watkins has this insane. I I don't want to call it a conspiracy theory, but it almost is one that he believes in, and he believes it fervently. So, Jim Watkins is. 8chan was one of the top referrers to the Donald Trump campaign website in 2016. Uh, Between the months of, I want to say, July and November or something like that, Vice.com did an article about how he was like top 10, top 5, something like that. Like his postings on 8chan were? Or what are you referring to as a top Uh, referrer? No, no, no. Oh, okay. So he had advertising on 8chan. Got it. So – okay. He put up, as far as I know, free advertisements for the Donald Trump campaign site. There's never been any proof that Donald Trump paid for those. I doubt it. Really, really doubt it. Fascinating. And I mean, I used to, I helped with the software, which they called SoftServe. It was like a self-serve ad system. And I saw that those ads were created by Jim's account. So unless he was secretly being paid by the Donald Trump campaign, which seems very unlikely. Um, he put those ads up just to support his candidate, you know, in the same way that some people would put up a yard sign. Um, but he owns a website. So when that Vice.com article came out about how 8chan was such a big referrer to Donald Trump's site, this led Jim Watkins to believe that he caused it. So he doesn't just see it as a correlation. <laughs> he sees it as a causation and it is impossible to talk him out of it. Wow. I tried numerous times, numerous times. And he is convinced 
that he has like the power to decide presidents, which is why I think he was going so far in on Q. And it's also why I think his YouTube presence has gotten more and more deranged. Did you see him dressed up as a Teletubby? No, I didn't even know he had a, I I seen one of his YouTube videos. I didn't know he had a YouTube presence. Um, He does. Uh, He has a very weird online footprint. Huh? So, that's really fascinating that you say he believed he caused the election of Donald Trump. Um, yeah, uh, he he really believed it. It it seems really weird and it seems really laughable because it is. But he and, you know, the thing is, Ron is very happy to play into that belief because Ron doesn't want it chan to close. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, dad, you know. Your Trump ads helps Trump. Why not? You know, yeah. let dad believe that. I mean, Ron is. Ron lies to his dad more than I think any kid I've ever seen with their parent. And I, I know that's a high bar, but and it's not usually an outright lie. It's just Ron will know that something his dad is saying is false. But if it works into a narrative that Ron likes, he will allow Jim to believe it. That's the most common way that they lie to each other. Because around me in private, Ron would say, oh, yeah, you know, I, I know that that's bullshit. I know that, you know, you know, that's what you would just, you know, yeah. I know that there's no way that those campaign ads had anything to do with Trump winning. Like, don't worry, Fred, I'm not that crazy. But, that's um, hilarious. you know, he sees it useful to have his dad believe that. So could you give me some insight into any did Jim Watkins envy any like Internet media pioneers? Like, did he talk about Matt Drudge or Brett Breitbart? Because if he had this big of a head thinking that he moved the needle on the election, um, you know, it makes me think of people like Matt Drudge, who used to say things like that, like that he, you know, he had his basically he could flip the switch to whoever he wanted president, um, you know, type of ego. So, like, did he ever talk about any any people like Andrew Breitbart or anything like that to you? So as far as envy goes, the person that Jim Watkins most wanted to emulate was the owner of Hustler, Larry Flynn. Okay. That is the person that Jim Watkins most aspires to be. He sees himself as this free speech absolutist warrior that is going toe-to-toe with Congress and telling them, no, I'm not going to delete any hate speech. No, you can't make me. It's the First Amendment. You know, like that insane statement that he wrote when he went in front of Congress is very much his beliefs. And I don't, I want to say that I feel like his lawyer wrote what Jim believed without necessarily wholeheartedly <laughs> believing it himself, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know how lawyers can do that sometimes where it's like you lay out to them, OK, I want the document to include this, this, this and this. And you cannot be talked out of that. Right. Like, I'm sure that his lawyer, because it was a very expensive D.C. lawyer, gave him some good advice, you know, about how to kind of deal with this issue and going in front of Congress. And Jim Watkins was like, nope, I just want to go full balls to the wall, tell them I don't even consider his hate speech possible to delete under the First Amendment. You know, like (laughs) no Twitter, Facebook mucking around. We're going to stick it to them. So, um, yeah, Larry Flint is somebody who he most aspires to be because Jim Watkins got his start in pornography. I mean, that is how he became somebody online. And, you know, he's never he's not going to very quickly lose that mentality. I mean, he was still running porn sites up until 
you know, when I left the company, he was still running very large porn sites at that. So uh, that's a big part of his ethos. But I do think that he was in many ways envious of, let's say, the Breitbart's of the world, the Matt Drudges of the world, because he would often talk about how he owns this extremely popular Japanese website and nobody knows his name in the U.S. and how he can decide who essentially wins an election in Japan. You know, maybe he can't decide who gets to be prime minister, but he can definitely, I totally believe, decide a lot of the lower elections just by, you know, his control over two channel, which is this huge platform. You know, it was a lot bigger back when we were talking about it, too. It's kind of uh, declined over the years mm -hmm. uh, in no small part due to his terrible management. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he felt like he wanted. He felt like what he was missing was. Mainstream American or at least Western political influence, and he didn't just want this kind of Japanese political influence that he can't even understand the influence that he has. Like, he wanted to be able to influence things that he cares about, to put it kind of simply. So he did envy Breitbart and Drudge in that respect, yes. Really interesting. I mean, you're giving a lot of uh, sort of, if we're if we're sort of armchair psychoanalyzing him, giving a lot of credence to the idea that he's involved in Q. I mean, just by the things you're telling me now. Well, yeah, I mean, that's why I think he's involved <laughs> in Q, and that's why I've always said that. I yeah. mean, to me, it just seems extremely obvious that he would be. I, You know, uh, we can go down that rabbit hole and all the technical details and stuff, but, I mean, well, I mean, I've basically convinced Ben Collins that I'm right about the fact that he could post as Q at any time. And what we are just waiting around to have proof of is whether or not he's actually done so, right? Yeah. So uh, the fact that he could, if he wanted to wake up one day and message whoever is in charge over at 8chan, I think it's still Ron, by the way. I don't believe that he's quit, not for a minute, but uh, he could, if he wanted, wake up one day and message Ron and say, hey, Q is going to post this. And then it would happen, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So... Yeah. Well, let me go back a little bit to when Q first started posting on 8chan. And what was your first reaction when it actually became what is known now as Q? Did you have any inkling at the time that this that it seemed like something Jim would be behind or did that realization or thought so come to you later? I should talk about kind of where my personal life was at that time. Sure, yeah. So uh, there are two main periods of my employment with Jim. The first period was where I was actually administering 8chan. And that ends in April 2016. But after it Which ended, is before I Q this. first posted. We should let people Correct. know. Yeah. Before the election and before Q first posted. Okay. So given that it ends so early, I wasn't necessarily making decisions at 8chan at the time that a lot of the decisions were made. So I wasn't totally out of the company, though. He knew that I was a, well, you know, he said to me at least that I was a good programmer. And he, I guess he thought that I knew too much in certain respects. So he knew that also the only reason that I ever came to work with them was because of 2Channel. 
So he offered to let me go work on two channel, basically. Okay. And I took that. So for the next two years, from April of 2016 until December of 2018, two channel was my job. And I didn't necessarily have anything to do with 8chan. That, now, that's not to say that I never heard about it because it's a small company and the higher ups are all the same people. So, yes, I would hear Ron and Jim and what they're excited about. Um, and that's how I first became aware of Q when Q started posting on 8chan. I didn't know about it on 4chan. When Q started posting on 8chan, Ron got very excited because I was pretty much the only 8chan bear in the group, you could say. Like, I would constantly argue for the idea that 8chan will die in the near term. Okay. Um, yes, that was my kind of assumed role. And I would use public statistics and uh, other kind of ways of figuring out if it's sustainable or not, you know. Uh, I would even, Mark Mann can even confirm this. Uh, he's another employee that got the boot recently, but I would even every six months on request, like, okay, unsolicited, I should say, every six months I would give them a report on whether I thought 8chan was going somewhere. And every single time it was, no, it's getting worse. Uh, that was the result of the report. And um, I mean, that unsolicited advice, you know, they would respond to it. They would talk about each report with me, you know, especially Ron. Like Jim would usually just say, you know, why do you spend all your time being negative? That's one of his uh, <laughs> lines for me. But Ron would actually engage with the report. He would look at the statistics that I pointed out and debate me on certain points of it. Um, like I said, I always got along better with Ron. So <laughs> uh, in any case, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, Jim has a boomer mentality in many respects. The whole positive thinking thing is one of them. So, uh, you know, that if we just think positively, things will uh, work out. You know, I don't believe that. I don't think that our thoughts necessarily impact uh, HN's growth at all. So in any case, um, given that I was one of the main HN bears, they would try to convince me often that HN was going somewhere. And Q was one of the ways, you know, Ron very quickly latched onto it when it came over to 8chan as kind of a refutation of my idea that 8chan has no reason to exist. <laughs> uh, yeah, because uh, after Hiroyuki moved into 4chan and Christopher Poole quit, the moderation got a lot more lax. And Hiroyuki added a lot of boards that 8chan had uh, and even sites like 420chan had. So they took over a lot of boards when that happened. And, you know, after the Gamergate stuff died, 8chan had less and less and less reason to need to exist. You know, everything that a user wanted to discuss on 8chan could be discussed just as well on 4chan with more users. So that was one of my main reasons it should be shut down. And so he very quickly latched on to Q in our discussions as, well, have you heard about this, though? And this is going to be the next big thing. And as long as there's something like this out there in the world, 8chan has a permanent existence. So his theory was, you know, we have Gamergate in the beginning and Q now. And we don't know what comes after Q, uh, but 
we know that something will come after Q because Gamergate and um, Q happened, basically. At the so, time, did he did he say anything like uh, this? You know, did he believe in the Q narrative, or he did he think it was just useful, but he didn't believe in it? And what would you say to like rebut him by saying, you know, when he would say Q is the next big thing? Would you be like, well, what is this shit? Like, is this so? In the <laughs> very beginning. Fake? Yeah, in the very beginning, Ron Watkins, I very much doubt that he believed even a single word of the narrative, right? I mean, these people just showed up at his website, and he decided to keep them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, And that they were a good thing. But especially in the early years of Q on 8chan, Q was not even the most major board. It was like between 5 and 20% of users all the way up until 2019. So it was, it was never a major concern until it became a coon, until the shootings happened and they needed to pivot. But before then, um, he, I don't think that Ron believed in any part of the Q narrative, uh, just personally. But I do think that Jim Watkins started to believe in more and more of it. And that started to concern me because Jim Watkins, and this is actually how I first started to figure out about like the Q debunkers while still in the company, you know, I was looking at the pages of uh, poker and politics, for example, Mm -hmm. one of the major Q debunkers, Travis View, right? Because I was being inundated with this Q stuff in my kind of discussions with Jim and Ron. So I, at the time, made a foolish decision because I, you know, in 2018, 2019, you know, especially early, sorry, 2017, 2018, you know, I cared about Jim Watkins, we can say, you know, I don't get along at all with my biological father. I, uh, yeah, <laughs> let's just leave it at that. Uh, we've been no contact for almost a decade. So, in some respects, Jim Watkins was a replacement father in some respects, and him believing more and more in Q, I took it as evidence of senility. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So it I, seemed earnest. His belief in it seemed earnest to you. It seemed earnest to me. So I came up with this scheme to try to break him out of it, and that's the wow. infamous blue Q proof. Uh, describe that. I don't know if you've heard of this. I have oh, not. Okay. I don't think, so, no. So uh, in 2018, I was actually seen as one of the major so-called Q-proofs. I, um, me, so myself, Ron Watkins, Jim Watkins, and then another guy whose name was never revealed to me. I just know that he's Brazilian and he goes by the name Martin, but he never revealed his full name to me or I don't think to anyone really. He was just somebody that uh, managed a few boards on 8chan and kind of rose through the ranks from the community side and then got hired by Jim. I think only Jim and Ron knew his name. But in any case, those four, and maybe plus Tom, I told them in advance that um, basically, you know, this is a not ne- a, not a prank necessarily, But what we're going to do, you know, is print out using a 3D print service in Manila, 
a blue cue. And we're going to take that blue cue and we are going to photograph me with it. And we are going to put just some obscure message along with it. And then we're going to see how the cue poster reacts. If the cue poster repudiates this new so-called proof, well, then we know that this whole thing is a scam. If the cue poster accepts, or sorry, if the cue poster accepts this as a proof, we know it's a scam. If he repudiates it, well, then, I mean, obviously we don't know that it's not a scam, but it's like not, not on the table, right? Yeah. So uh, the cue poster did not repudiate. The cue poster accepted it. And not only that, there was a cue drop that I had never even heard of because I'm not an accolade of this kind of thing where Q had written that the something like the moderators and admins of this platform are going to get a personal message, something like that. Right. And they used that post hoc to say that the Q that I schemed with Ron and Jim Watkins to make was that message from Q. And I mean, Ron Watkins was definitely totally on board with me at that point that this is fake, like that. Okay, you're right, Fred. Q is not an insider. And I mean, Jim Watkins even, you know, recognized to an extent that my fake Q proof, as it were, to uh, prove to Jim Watkins that Q is not real was, you know, successful. But I mean, Jim Watkins was already getting to the point where he started to say stuff like disinformation is necessary, right? Mm -hmm. So it didn't totally work on him the way that I had hoped. Um, and, you know, at these days, I wonder the degree to which he believes in Q. I, I still wonder about that. It's never a question that's gone away. I think that Jim Watkins, you know, and, and the thing about it is with these guys, there's always shades of meaning because when we look at a guy like Paul Ferber, for example, he will say publicly that QAnon was real up until it got taken off of his board and given to another board. So when we look at Ferber, you know, who is, I think, one of the best candidates for being early Q before Jim, um, we can see that these guys are very good at explaining away their own bad behavior and Jim Watkins he could he could very well believe that Q was real up into a certain point and then you know he took it over for whatever reason um yeah and, and I mean there are different ways that they could take it over like they don't have to take it over in that they're going to write every drop they can take it over in that they're just going to moderate them. So they'll put the Q drops into a Q, a Q-U-E-U-E, and they will not allow Q to post anything which looks like, you know, hey, everybody, go to Gab. <laughs> you know <laughs> what I mean? Uh, hey, everybody, we're going to this method of verification now. Hey, everybody, here's my cryptographic key, right? Yeah. They can block those posts, but still allow certain posts. Like, just because there's no transparency, there's so many things that they could do. Now, I mean, at this point, post Acoon, post the shootings, with Jim Watkins fully reliant on Q for any traffic to 8chan, I believe he's taken it over. 
Like, I believe that. But I, you know, I think it was a gradual process of him, a gradual process for him of accepting what Q could do for him and his business and then, you know, kind of getting the courage to take it over. Yeah. Fascinating. So at what point did you start feeling uh, or believing that he had actually taken it over? Uh, so yeah, I didn't feel that way outright until eight coon happened. So when I was able to get HN down for three months at the end of 2019, I just messaged a bunch of different hosting providers, uh, DDoS mitigation providers, domain registrars, anybody you can imagine that has anything to do with the technical side of hosting a website and told them, Hey, there have been two terrorist attacks on this site. I should know that these guys are terrible at moderating it because I used to do this at their job. And you should not give your services to this site if you don't want to be responsible for another attack. You know, that worked very well at the end of 2019. And it was, I was able to keep 8chan down for three solid months. And when 8kun came online and Q started posting right away, even when nobody else could do so, and I was sitting at the computer trying very hard to post and I couldn't get anything through and I wrote the software. So, you know, I was looking at the debugger log and reading, you know, the messages that I wrote, you know, <laughs> so I knew I knew what was wrong on the server side. And I knew that it was essentially impossible for anybody to be posting right now. But Q was not having any trouble. And Q, it was very uncertain at, in November that 8kun was going to stay online. I mean, I had already convinced almost a Russian host to pull it, and it could have gotten pulled again and just fell down like a, um, like a, like a house of cards. It happened before. Uh, they were up briefly a few times in October and early November, and I was able to pull them down again each time. Uh, so given that there's no reason for a third-party queue to keep using 8chan. There's no reason for a third-party queue not to immediately, if they're going to post any drop at all, you would think that their first drop would be official queue drops are now at gab.com slash whatever. Yeah, know? yeah, exactly. So that is why I think that Jim Watkins and company took over queue. It's it's all about uh, the 8kun, 8chan switchover. And if it wasn't then, if they took it over earlier, uh, the most likely candidate would be the Paul Ferber thing, where Paul Ferber and Ron Watkins got into a dispute about which Q was the real Q. Interesting. <laughs> and, yeah. Well, that's one of the things that I'm that I haven't had a solid grasp on is how did people in general believe that it was the same Q from the different transitions to these completely different message boards from 4chan to 8chan and then from 8chan to eight coon was there anything that people latched onto that where they were like this is there this has was, to be there q are really no good technical reasons for latching onto that i mean uh, there was okay so um 4chan has a system where you can type a password and you'll get like an automatically generated username that is supposed to be hard to forge so if you type let's say a hashtag and then the word Matlock, which, by the way, was Q's original password. Uh, hashtag Matlock, 
you will get an automatically generated username, which is called a trip code. And users in an ideal world would have a very hard time forging that trip code. In reality, because the way that the trip code is generated is known, but beyond that, because it uses insecure cryptographic hashes, uh, it is extremely simple to crack a trip code, which is how we know that Q's password was Matlock. And then he changed it to M at lock. Um, very uh, brilliant guy there. <laughs> Did who cracked that? Did someone like uh someone say that they had? Done it's that? not no. Yes, somebody just posted it on the board. It's not known who cracked it. Interesting. Because it, you could literally crack it with publicly available software, if you had the right GPU and you had the time and the electricity, just like, it, very much like, mining a Bitcoin. You can mine a trip code, sure, um, and that would be very easy to fix. Uh, but you know, it it's almost impossible at this point to get 4chan, 8chan, 2channel, to get everybody to agree on a new trip code standard. So that's why it just hasn't been done. Um, but in any case, so what happened was when it moved from 4chan to 8chan, it was using this original trip code system, which was insecure and can be cracked. But users saw that it had the same trip code on 8chan as was on 4chan. And then after being on 8chan for a while, Q changed into using this HN proprietary method called a secure trip code. Now, it is secure, and I'm going to want to put that in quotation marks because it is secure, yes, but the way they made it secure gives all the power to Ron. So the way that they made it secure was they just made the algorithm for figuring out the trip code proprietary. They figure in a secret password called a salt in the beginning. So every user or every password that people type in to get their trip code is prepended by a string. And that string that gets prepended is um, not known to the public. So there's no way for us to verify that any trip code, well, that any password is equal to any 8chan secure trip code. So there's a big difference between a 4chan trip code and an 8chan trip code. A uh, 4chan trip code has one exclamation mark and HN trip code has two. So given that that's the case, there is no way for a third party to crack it without cracking HN's server, which is much more difficult to do than to just, you know, crack the ancient um, the triple DES algorithm that was used in the original trip code. Because I understand the trip code thing on a certain level, but... When it moved to HN, it, do you think it was just a matter of uh, being at the right place at the right time that that HN picked up this baton? Could it have technically been anyone else who was clever enough? It could have. It could have been any other image board, yes. Interesting, okay. Uh, it could have been any other image board. The problem was nobody wanted them. I mean, <laughs> the other image boards that existed at the time, 420chan is one of the biggest image boards in the world today, and it was then too. I believe it, at the time that this all happened, it was the number three English language image board. Now it's number two. So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Frederick Brennan, the co-runner, former co-runner of HN and creator of HN. Now, one part that Frederick didn't get a chance to explain in our interview because unfortunately it ended abruptly 
Frederick was in the middle of moving at this time, and he had to go. But one of the interesting aspects of this story that Frederick tells on another podcast called Replay All, episode number 166, is that he believes that Ron and Jim Watkins essentially stole away the QAnon identity from the man who Frederick Brennan believes originally created it. And that man is named Paul Ferber. Now, Frederick didn't get a chance to really go into Paul Ferber in our interview, but I recommend you read a little bit into who Paul Ferber is and why he also fits into this story. If you want to go back to the beginning to hear exactly what the overall theory is of why Frederick Brennan thinks that the Watkins family is behind Q, you can listen to him on some other podcasts, like the QAnon Anonymous podcast. But generally speaking, I think one interesting aspect of this that really got me thinking is this idea that someone could co-opt and steal Q away from someone else. Like power factions can establish themselves in these little Chan message boards or these different political actors who maybe want to take control of the narrative on a different layer and actually steal that engine away. Now, on my first two-parter QAnon analysis episode that I did, I talked an awful lot about how Alex Jones uh, committed a lot of his time and energy, and I think even some of his credibility, which he lost over promoting QAnon as long as he did, and really doubling down on it. And we don't even really have to go into Jerome Corsi's bizarre role or what he claimed was his role in decoding QAnon messages for the Trump administration yet. We will go into that a little bit more later, but I mean... Alex Jones essentially allowed himself and his sort of conspiracy narrative media empire to be usurped by this QAnon identity. So I believe what we've been witnessing in sort of the quasi-populist, if you want to actually call it populist, the populist right movement, you know, we've already witnessed fracturings between the populist movement from the more larger conservative movement like Fox News internally the the sort of the right populists have always been against the more status quo republicans on Fox News that's been the case for a while during the Trump era but what's new is we're starting to witness major fracturings within the populist right movement the overall the hardcore maga movement we're starting to witness very large fracturings, I think, that have in large part to do with the QAnon movement. And a lot of the story that I'm about to tell you now about the timeline that's happened over the past few weeks, I think, tells a story of an internal war, a territorial battle, perhaps, between people in the right populist movement trying to save face, trying to make sure that their brand survives past the Trump movement, and they're trying to maintain their own power over the forces that have actually gone beyond Q. Gone beyond Q in the sense that Q is no longer driving the bus. Q and on, just like Trump, 
or should I say Q, because the poster goes by Q. The movement is called QAnon. But just like Trump, Q is hiding. Q has been hiding. Q just doesn't seem to have the steam right now necessary to want to do anything with this moment where all these people are desperate to know if their president, their leader, Daddy Trump, is going to fight for them. Because so far, Trump energetically has at least shown that he's really not going to fight. Not just the fact that he just recently tweeted that he's going to allow the transition to begin, which sort of sends the final nail in the coffin, but just his behavior has been uncharacteristically not present on the media. He's hurting emotionally. Um, I, you know, a lot of QN honors think this is a 4D chess move of some kind. That's what Steve Pachenik was trying to say. But see, Steve Pachenik lost control, I think, of the Q Anon movement a while ago. And I think this recent example of him trying to start a new conspiracy theory about how these ballots were a giant sting operation done by the deep state patriots to try to stop the deep state Dems. Um, that conspiracy theory didn't get picked up, really. It started to float a little bit. The My Pillow guy, Mike Lindell, even tweeted that out. Just like previous people that Frederick Brennan mentioned in our interview, people like Steve Pachenik actually lost control of his influence of what could be called the QAnon movement. Trump is uncharacteristically silent, actually eerily so at this point. I'm beginning to be creeped out by it. At first, I thought it was funny. I was like, oh, this stupid motherfucker got hurt. He's sort of embarrassed. He's mortified. And now I'm just like, dude, this is creepy. This dude is always eager to get on TV, to get on Fox and Friends. And he's just not going on any shows, barely showing his face at all. In fact, he only did two appearances in front of the press, or actually four total. Two of those, he didn't speak at all to the press, or he just spoke for a second during the turkey pardoning. The other two, um, one of them was an Oval Office press conference where he didn't take any questions, and he just looked down at a piece of paper and seemed like he was completely defeated and deflated. And this was a week or so after election night. But just like Trump, Q also was hiding out and barely interfacing with the public. In fact, it took 10 whole days after the election because the Q drop, the last one at least, was on election eve. It was an Abraham Lincoln quote with an American flag with a Last of the Mohican soundtrack posting. Video link. Now, there was a 10-day hiatus after that. Q is silent for 10 whole days when, you know, the whole, this whole time it was like, yeah, Trump is going to win this. You know, everything's fine. Trust the plan. That was Q's whole mentality before this. Now Q leaves everybody hanging for 10 days while at the same time, Trump leaves everybody hanging. Trump is barely saying anything. He's tweeting, you know, these really aggressive sounding things, but they don't really come off as believable you can tweet all you want but it's like where's the trump that we that we knew from a few months ago the fighting trump the roy Cohn counterpunching trump where is he 
So I don't know what Q's deal was, but it also sort of hid away, slinked away for 10 days. And when it came back, it said, Nothing could stop what is coming. Nothing. Q. That was posted 3.23 on 11.13. About an hour later, I guess Q couldn't help themselves and they wanted to post an additional post. Maybe that one didn't catch enough fire. Q says, Shall we play a game? Nothing can stop what is coming. And Q makes sure to emphasize the first letters in each one of those words. NCS. W-I-C. He posts a URL linking to a CISA.gov website about a program apparently called NCSWIC. Q then continues, Who stepped down today? Forced. Then he posts a URL to the cybersecurity guy, I guess, in charge of elections, that apparently was fired by Trump. Q continues, More coming? Why is this relevant? How do you show the public the truth? How do you safeguard U.S. elections post-POTUS? How do you remove foreign interference and corruption and install U.S.-owned voter ID laws and other safeguards? It had to be this way. Sometimes you must walk through the darkness before you see the light. Q. Two hours later, Q posts Durham. Now, I'm almost a little sad. I mean, I have to admit, when I read that, I was honestly, my heart sank. And I thought, it just doesn't have the pizzazz. It doesn't have the magic. It's not, where's the fire? This is saying things like post-potus. It had to be this way. Sometimes you must walk through the darkness before you see the light. What does it mean? Is this saying that Donald Trump has lost? I mean, if I read this and I was a MAGA and a QAnon supporter... I would get worried. I would start to get a little worried that QAnon is essentially saying that Trump is out. Now, that kind of contradicts the Trump official messaging. Trump's legal team is claiming that they have some kind of legal reason to keep fighting to try to overturn the election results. Q doesn't say anything about it. It just says, how do you safeguard U.S. elections post POTUS. Sometimes you must walk through the darkness. Does that mean Trump losing before you see the light? Now we're all of a sudden, as Q supporters, supposed to want to make elections more fair, and that's going to be the fight moving forward, and we're just going to move past the Trump era? That doesn't seem exciting at all. What's exciting about that? And then that last post, Durham. There's a website called qalerts.app, and I think that, that you can hook this website into a phone to alert you. Now, here's the sad part. I actually had to click here to see what was up because those three last posts I read you 
nothing can stop what is coming, nothing in that long rant where he posts two URLs and says post POTUS and then just Durham. Durham was the last post. Now, Q started this, you know, 10 days of darkness thing where he didn't post or they didn't post after the election and then finally just posted these three posts. But now we have an even longer, or actually, well, this will be officially even longer 20 minutes from now. So right now, technically, it has been one week, two days, 22 hours, and 41 minutes since Q has last posted. Now, that means in just a couple hours here, it'll be officially longer than the last time Q went dark. So that either means Q is going to post soon or that Q is running out of steam. Just when Trump and the Trump movement need Q the most, Q is running out of steam for whatever reason. There is not very much energy here. There's almost nothing to grasp onto. And the Q communities and the Q and honors and the sort of MAGAs mixed with the Q and honors, because all the Q and honors are MAGAs, they're all extremely pro Trump. They're just sort of grasping at straws at their own narratives now. But the middle post in between there was a long rant that posted to a website that belonged to a government agency called CISA. That's a cybersecurity agency. And you know, we know that all these agencies just got a bunch of money after 9-11. This is like a cyber war arm of the U.S. government that I didn't really know existed, frankly, in, a, in this formal of a way. But QAnon had a new acronym to go on because Q had said, nothing can stop what is coming in the first post after this 10-day silence, 10 days of darkness. And nothing can stop what is coming, apparently, if you break that acronym down, into NCSWIC also stands for National Council of Statewide Interoperability Coordinators. So what is this breadcrumb supposed to mean? What was this QAnon posting supposed to mean? Trump randomly fires the director of CISA. CISA director Christopher Krebs had recently butted heads with the White House over his agency's rumor control blog, which rebuts false claims of election fraud and hacking. <laughs> uh, let's see if I can actually go to the blog to see what they rebutted. Okay, so Christopher Krebs made a little video on the CISA website that's actually still online, by the way, even after he was fired. Interesting. So after Trump fired this guy, Q's still not posting anything. A lot of Q and honors at this point thinks that this is really important. This is key to what's happening. Because, you know, if Trump fired this guy over him trying to rebut this theory, then that means this guy is basically part of it. And Trump wants to get him out of the way, you know, to continue fighting this shadow war against the deep state. So for some reason, this guy rebutting those claims means that essentially that those claims are true about some kind of election fraud done through voting machine hacking. But in general, election conspiracies at this point, this was about November 13th, are still rather malformed in the right conspiracy world. They're churning around online. They're very disorganized messaging, the mixed messaging even. 
But then suddenly one conspiracy won out, by far, out of them all. And this conspiracy didn't even really have anything to do with the firing of the head of CISA, or what Q said directly. But this was a theory about Dominion voting systems. This was the theory that sort of took center stage. And this theory already had legs because of the Democrat-connected insiders who were linked to this company of Dominion Software. And this was the idea that the Dominion voting software was flipping the vote to Biden because that's what the deep state uses to flip elections in other countries, a.k.a. even doing color revolutions. Miles Guo's website pushed this theory. Just a few days passed, QAnon still remained silent, and it had that last remaining post, Durham. Remember that? Was he talking about John Durham? What did Q mean by Durham? Skipping forward in the timeline a little bit, what QAnoners decided Q meant by Durham was not John Durham, which was probably what Q actually meant, but QAnoners now believe that Durham was code for Sidney Powell. Trust the plan, trust the Kraken. Sidney Powell is apparently from Durham, North Carolina. So that was enough to convince QAnoners this is all about Sidney Powell. That's the kind of straws they're grasping at. So then something odd happens. Ron Watkins, the guy associated now with QAnon, and his father, Jim Watkins, for running the website 8Coon, where Q posts are now dropped, announced on social media that he was leaving 8Coon and would no longer be associated with it. So Ron Watkins announced about 10 or 11 days after the election that he was leaving 8Coon. Frederick Brennan, from the interview that I just played, has stated previously not to believe Ron. I think that's wise. But it's still an interesting public declaration because of what I'm about to tell you. This may seem like it's not a big deal. Like, who really cares? Well, suddenly, Trump's legal team's primary point person became Michael Flynn's lawyer, a known QAnoner named Sidney Powell, who promotes a bunch of QAnon accounts like Praying Medic, like Tracy Beans. She appears on a relatively prominent QAnon show. Rudy Giuliani was already the main guy, you know, for this legal team. But now all of a sudden she became the main point person in the public media sphere. And she was starting to make these wild promises about incoming proof of mass election fraud done via the software, done via Dominion. Then Ron Watkins, the guy who runs 8Coon with his father, Jim Watkins, who claims that he had now left 8Coon, Ron Watkins in a cowboy hat appears on the OAN network as a cybersecurity expert with absolutely no mention of his association at all with 8chan or 8coon. And the reason this is strange is because Ron Watkins is not like a public figure who goes on any media networks as any kind of expert. This was like his first time, as far as I know, appearing on a mainstream or on some kind of political news channel to appear as any kind of cybersecurity expert. And it's also strange timing because this is also around the same time that Frederick Benin and a lot of other journalists have been writing exposés claiming that they believe Ron and Jim Watkins are essentially QAnon as it exists 
right now on Aidkun. And a cyber analyst shares alarming insights into the scandal-ridden voting uh, software Dominion. One America's Chanel Rion has more. While voter fraud deniers continue to proclaim the perfection of the U.S. election system, skeptics are looking at irregular patterns in vote data. In particular, software irregularities that would switch votes from President Trump to Joe Biden. Dominion Voting Systems is one such software that seemed to have a pattern of switching votes from Trump to Biden. How easily could bad actors have used Dominion to switch thousands of votes and alter an election? County by county, the answer is shocking. One American News spoke with Ron Watkins, a large systems technical analyst who has been poring over the Dominion Systems manual. So I was looking at this manual with the mindset of a penetration tester, of which I am. I'm reading the manual with a discerning eye and trying to figure out which parts of the system could be abused by uh, end users. The physical security of the device is the first step to security. If you can't secure the physical device, then you have no security. It, it's impossible to have security if you don't secure the physical device. Working off the Dominion manual and public request documents from Pennsylvania's Secretary of State, Watkins says the vulnerabilities of Dominion reside in the fact that administrative access is so easy to attain. With administrative access comes direct access to ballots and how they are counted. So you have the issue of the person who is inside the tabulation machine, which is just a normal Windows 10 computer, are they manipulating the votes before it goes to the flash drive? And then you have the next issue, which is now the votes are on the flash drive. Does, how does that flash drive get to the, the county commissioner or, or whoever is assigned to accept the flash drive? Is the same flash drive being, uh, being sent over? So you could swap the flash drive theoretically. There's uh, no accountability there. And then once the county commissioner or whoever uh, accepts that flash drive gets the flash drive, do you trust them to not go in and edit the contents before they report it? In Michigan, one county reported 6,000 ballots being affected because of a software malfunction. Catching this error meant the difference between that county voting Biden to that county actually having voted for Trump by 2,500 votes. So another issue is the keys. So it is a strange thing. Is this sort of a coming out party? Is he trying to rebrand himself? Let's say in theory, if Ron Watkins is behind posting as Q or is behind Q at this point, and Q has sort of gone silent, does Ron Watkins see this as maybe an opportunity to jump into the fray and become some kind of you know, person to steer the conspiracy narratives and not do it from behind the QAnon account? Is he looking for a career path or some kind of public persona to dive into beyond Q? Is he done with Q? That's one theory, I think, to pontificate about what this could mean. It gets even weirder than that. Because he was also saying things on Twitter like he's in contact with Rudy Giuliani's legal team. Ron Watkins was in contact with Rudy Giuliani's legal team, he claimed, and that he was talking to them about Dominion, and that he was getting in touch 
with people like Sidney Powell to talk to her about Dominion voting software. Now, after this segment came out, pretty much Trump's legal team's representative, Sidney Powell, started to heavily lean into the Dominion voting software scandal and talk nonstop about this software and essentially repeating all the talking points beat for beat that Ron Watkins just laid out on that segment about the manual. He's talking about examining Dominion software voting systems manual. This is where she got all this information from, clearly repeating it from that segment. Or was she? Because you could say, well, maybe she just watched the segment, you know? Did she watch the segment? Or was Ron Rockins actually telling the truth? Was he really in contact with Trump's legal team at this point? I mean, that's a pretty ridiculous claim to make. It's obviously hard to take it at face value. No one should. But it even gets weirder, like I said. So I'm going to play you this clip of Sidney Powell completely regurgitating all of Ron Watkins' talking points on Fox News. Okay, but you have a very time, for a small time frame here. The elections are supposed to be certified in early December. Do you believe that you can present this to the courts and be successful within this just couple of weeks? Well, let me put it this way. First of all, I never say anything I can't prove. Uh, secondly, the evidence is coming in so fast, I can't even process it all. Millions of Americans have written, I would say by now, uh, definitely hundreds of thousands have stepped forward with their different experiences of voter fraud. But this is a massive election fraud, and I'm very concerned it involved not only uh, Dominion and its Smartmatic uh, software, but that the software essentially was used by other election machines also. It's the software that was the problem. Even their own manual explains how votes can be wiped away. Uh, they can put, it's like drag and drop Trump votes to a separate folder and then delete that folder. It's absolutely brazen how people bought this system and why they bought this system. In fact, every state that bought Dominion for sure should have a criminal investigation or at least a, a serious investigation of the, uh, federal, of the officers in the states who bought the software. We've even got evidence of some kickbacks, essentially. Kickbacks. I want to take a short break and come back on that. And I want to ask you about the kickbacks and who took kickbacks in which states. Sydney, stay with us. Quick break. And we've got more breaking news this morning from Sydney Powell. Stay with us. And just a few days after that, Trump actually retweets the OAN segment with Ron Watkins. And then Trump additionally has someone clip the second part of the interview with Ron Watkins on OAN and tweets it out himself. Trump then fully leans into the Dominion voter fraud narrative and starts posting old news segments about hacker conventions where they were trying to hack into a Dominion voting machine and things like that. Now, even though Trump's legal effort so far seemed extremely weak and the fact that he was hiding out just telegraphed total weakness and all this stuff, it still seemed like on some level the MAGA right-wing narrative about voter fraud would still have the upper hand in the sense that Trump would post this clip, you know, from, I think it was from NBC News from like four years ago showing a hacker convention 
of hackers hacking into Dominion systems and Diebold systems and things like that. And the, you know, the neoliberal media side of the equation will be like, there's no evidence that these machines could be tampered with. You know, this is a total hoax. This is, um, you know, this is complete disinformation. And then the right wing media would just be like, no, here's the segment that NBC ran from four years ago showing the hacker convention. So it's things like that, you know, that turn that sort of amp up the, the, the posturing where the right can sort of take the upper hand in a sense in the framing of it. Because if they're saying that these machines could be hacked into and that's their general story, well then, yeah, they could just keep pushing that because technically these machines can be hacked into. But the whole thing is all culminating with Sidney Powell making these promises and then Rudy Giuliani also making these promises that they have a really strong legal case. And then Trump also just sort of deluding his own followers into thinking that they have a good legal case. Trump knows that he's out the door. I think it's pretty clear at this point that he's out the door or he's planning something really insane. I don't think he is. I think he's really thrown in the cell. Even Rudy Giuliani during this time period starts leaning into the Dominion voter fraud narrative, election fraud narrative, that this was hacked for Biden. And it was done by foreign governments, he started to say, on TV networks. Well, the, the machines can be hacked. There's no question about that. Their machines can be hacked. But it's far worse than that. Dominion, Dominion is a company that's owned by another company called Smartmatic through an intermediary company named Indra. Smartmatic is a company that was formed way back in about 2004, 2003, 2004. You're going to be astonished when I tell you how it was formed. It was formed really by three Venezuelans who were very close to, um, very close to the di dictator Chavez of uh, Venezuela. And it was formed in order to wow. fix elections. Uh, that's, the, that's the company that owns Dominion. Dominion is a Canadian company, but all of its software is Smartmatic software. So the votes actually go to Barcelona, Spain. So we're using a foreign company that is owned by Venezuelans who are close to, we're close to, uh, to uh, uh, Chavez, are now close to Maduro. Then Sidney Powell, after there started to be building pressure from others in conservative media, you know, even some right populace, maybe. I don't know, maybe internally. I didn't really see much evidence of it, but I'm assuming so. Because Sidney Powell starts promising that the wait was worth it, that they were going to present evidence soon, and that she's going to release the Kraken. This became a popular phrase in QAnon world. And all these other mainstream conservatives started using the term too, like almost like the storm is coming or trust the plan. Again, Powell is a known QAnoner. And Michael Flynn, her client that she represents, is someone who seems to be deeply I wouldn't say necessarily involved because there's no proof of that, but he seems to be deeply invested in QAnon, which is very strange for a former sitting military general to be that invested into QAnon. So right now what you're seeing is they're taking sort of over the narrative in sort of the MAGA conservative media movement. 
Fox News is sort of playing along in a more general sense, even though Rupert Murdoch gave Trump the boot, called it for Arizona, one of the first networks to. They're not playing along overall. Their network isn't. But most of the MAGA-centric hosts at this point are still playing along and putting out sort of false hopes that Trump's people are going to pull something off. Partly because Sidney Powell was acting like they had the smoking gun that was going to like overturn this election. And the conservative media, for the large part, was entertaining her. Then we actually get what's supposed to be the Kraken. We finally got what you could describe as their version of the Kraken. And what that version was, was Rudy Giuliani going out, talking to the press live, sweating his balls off to the point where his forehead gets completely sweat, sweaty, dripping with sweat. And about 20 minutes into the press conference, you start to see these gross, horrific, dark brown lines that look like sewage water dripping down the sides of his face. And you realize instantly, oh, that's hair dye. And it just keeps happening during the whole press conference. And evidently someone must have texted him or tapped him on the shoulder to let him know it was happening because he eventually starts wiping the sides of his head and all around his face with a handkerchief during the press conference to make it stop happening. And it just keeps happening. It keeps dripping down the sides. It's absolutely disgusting. So this was the Kraken as Rudy Giuliani just sweating profusely with hair dye dripping down his face. So the Kraken was this disgusting, frail old man who is a deep state monster. And I'll explain a little later how if you out there want to help reverse conspiracy pill people on Rudy Giuliani, I'll give you all the tools to do it. So don't, don't let me forget that. The U.S. District Court judges. When you say there's no evidence, uh, Sidney was giving you information that come from affidavits from other people with a very big spike in the vote count at exactly that time. Right up. So what we're telling you is supported by evidence. Uh, Republicans shut out in the city of Milwaukee and also in Madison. Republicans almost uniformly shut out from the absentee process, not allowed to inspect, not allowed to look at the ballots, vote. Think about that. 200% of the registered voters in the district vote. What does that mean? Took off all of his social media. Haha, but we kept it. We've got it. The man is a vicious, vicious man. <laughs> but then Sidney Powell gets up there and talks about this extremely elaborate sounding conspiracy that just sounds absolutely childlike, cartoonish, just almost like pathetic. Um, this conspiracy narrative involving communist foreign money to throw our election to Biden. And it involved players like Hugo Chavez, China, and basically a vast globalist communist conspiracy. And she just sounded like some kind of weird 1950s McCarthyist as, as she opened up her statement on the evidence that they had. I'll let Sydney describe that to you. Thank you, Rudy. 
What we are really dealing with here and uncovering more by the day is the massive influence of communist money through Venezuela, Cuba, and likely China in the interference with our elections here in the United States. The Dominion voting systems, the Smartmatic technology software, and the software that goes in other computerized voting systems here as well, not just Dominion, were created in Venezuela at the direction of Hugo Chavez to make sure he never lost an election after one constitutional referendum came out the way he did not want it to come out. We have one very strong witness who has explained how it all works. His affidavit is attached to the pleadings of Lynn Wood in the lawsuit he filed in Georgia. <clears throat> it is a stunning, detailed affidavit because he was with Hugo Chavez while the, he was being briefed on how it worked. He was with Hugo Chavez when he saw it operate to make sure the election came out his way. That was the express purpose for creating this software. He has seen it operate, and as soon as he saw the multiple states shut down the voting at the, on the night of the election, he knew the same thing was happening here, that that was what had gone on. Now, the software itself was created with so many variables and so many back doors that can be hooked up to the internet or a thumb drive stuck in it or whatever, but one of its most characteristic features is, is its ability to flip votes. It can set and run an algorithm that probably ran all over the country to take a certain percentage of votes from President Trump and flip them to President Biden, which we might never have uncovered had the votes for President Trump not been so overwhelming in so many of these states that it broke the algorithm that had been plugged into the system. And that's what caused them to have to shut down in the states they shut down in. That's when they came in the back door with all the mail-in mail -in ballots, many of which they had actually fabricated. Some were on pristine paper with identically matching uh, perfect circle dots for Mr. Biden. Others were shoved in in batches. They're always put in in a certain number of batches, and people would rerun the same batch. So, like, anybody with a brain at that point who was even, like, still invested in the, the concept that Trump could still pull this off, legally speaking, I think at that moment, once they saw that part of the speech, they were thinking, holy shit, is this a QAnon thing? Like, taking, I mean, not saying that, you know, most of the people thought that was a QAnon thing, but they were like, oh, my God, this is, like, this just sounds nuts. I don't know if I could go here. Now I think Trump lost. Like, this might be the moment where Trump doesn't become president. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Because if this was the Kraken, then all of a sudden they're seeing that the Kraken was this absolutely sloppy as fuck QAnon-style thing. But, like, even QAnon's general stuff, in the past at least, was better than this. This is just a really crazy volley they threw out there. What Sidney Powell was largely saying is that this was the Dominion voting software that was somehow used to get Hugo Chavez elected unfairly. And this is all part of this larger conspiracy to get Biden elected by hacking the voting systems, essentially. But she provided no evidence during this press conference. 
So Fox News, I mean, I wasn't that surprised that they did this because the fractures are starting to get wider and wider, which is interesting to watch happen on Fox News. We've talked about it before here on Media Roots, the fracturing, the civil war on Fox News. But Fox News absolutely destroyed the living fuck out of their press conference. The following live segment, like commentary about the press conference was devastating for Trump's people, for Trump's legal team. First, let's go to Kristen Fisher. She's live at the White House. Kristen. Well, that was certainly a colorful news conference from Rudy Giuliani, but it was light on facts. So much of what he said was simply not true or has already been thrown out in court. And, uh, you know, Giuliani, he opened by making this really bold and baseless claim that uh, a lot of this alleged nationwide voter fraud that he's referring to all came from one centralized place. He called it a nationwide conspiracy. Uh, And yet, he failed to provide any hard evidence to back up that one specific claim, especially when you're dealing with uh, a claim that really cuts to the core of our democratic process. Now, in Pennsylvania, Giuliani continued to claim widespread voter fraud in Philadelphia, even though he has already said in court, and I quote, this is not a fraud case. So what he's saying in public, not under oath, is different from what he said in court. Moving on to Michigan, where the Trump campaign dropped its final federal lawsuit just this morning after two Republican canvassers in Wayne County say they now want to rescind their votes to certify the election. Giuliani says they dropped the lawsuit because the state did decertify, but that is not true. The results were certified in Michigan on Tuesday, and Biden won. As for evidence, well, Giuliani kept holding up pages and pages of what he says are sworn affidavits, hundreds of them, people claiming voter fraud and irregularities, but he's declining to show them, to show all of them at least, and listen to his explanation why. I can't give you all these affidavits because if I do, these people will be harassed, they'll be threatened, they may lose their job. We have a hundred more of these. I can't show them to you because those people don't want to be harassed. They don't want to be have their lives torn apart. Now, up on that stage with Giuliani was a big poster with the headline, Multiple Paths to Victory. But Giuliani never credibly explained a single path, let alone multiple ones. So, Dana, the fact remains that the Trump campaign has yet to provide, at least in court, hard evidence of voter fraud and irregularities widespread enough to overturn the outcome of the election and to effectively challenge President-elect Joe Biden's stance uh, as the president-elect. Dana? Kristen Fisher, thank you for the update. There was a lot there to unpack after that 90-minute press conference. And so does the Hill Rising with, you know, Sagar Anjedi from Hudson Institute. Which is interesting because some of the other shills at the Hudson Institute, like poor General Robert Spaulding, are still hanging on for dear life with every dumb conspiracy that Rudy and Sidney Powell have been repeating this whole time. So we covered earlier in the show Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell's uh, press conference around election fraud allegations. And almost immediately after, the best reaction I actually saw was on Fox News. It was immediate. It was scathing from Kristen Fisher, who's a White House correspondent over there. Uh, just take a listen. No, it's in court. It didn't happen. Yeah. No evidence. Yeah, I mean, like, really beginning to crumble. It's the same thing, which is that slowly but surely, you're going to see a lack of indulgence here. Because at the beginning, you get the benefit of the doubt. 
and even here we were like look we'll present you to the evidence but like as the date click you know ticks cl closer to the certification deadlines and you get promises and promises and promises they're like we're going to release the kraken and then yesterday that was the kraken i mean there's no evidence zero and you press her and she doesn't want to give it to you so now this is where it gets really interesting and i think on a symbolic level this is where we saw a really big moment occur where it was a fracturing within the populist right MAGA movement between the QAnoners and just the regular hardcore MAGA people and the right populace. You know, you're already losing Cigar on Jetty. That's not good. But, you know, who else can you risk losing? Well, apparently... One side of this thought that they could risk losing Tucker Carlson because Tucker did the unthinkable, a cardinal sin, which was rebutting some of Sidney Powell's completely outrageous, cartoonishly unprovable and unbelievable claims. For more than a week, Powell has been all over conservative media with the following story. This election was stolen by a collection of international leftists who manipulated vote tabulating software in order to flip millions of votes from Donald Trump to Joe Biden. The other day on television, Powell said of Trump that when the fraud is finally uncovered, quote, I think we'll find he had at least 80 million votes. In other words, rigged software stole about 7 million votes in this election. Here's some of what Powell said today about the software. One of its most characteristic features is, is its ability to flip votes. It can set and run an algorithm that probably ran all over the country to take a certain percentage of votes from President Trump and flip them to President Biden, which we might never have uncovered had the votes for President Trump not been so overwhelming in so many of these states that it broke the algorithm that had been plugged into the system. And that's what caused them to have to shut down in the states they shut down in. That was a few hours ago, but Sidney Powell has been saying similar things for days. On Sunday night, we texted her after watching one of her segments. What Powell was describing would amount to the single greatest crime in American history. Millions of votes stolen in a day. Democracy destroyed the end of our centuries-old system of self-government, not a small thing. Now, to be perfectly clear, we did not dismiss any of it. We don't dismiss anything anymore, particularly when it's related to technology. We've talked to too many Silicon Valley whistleblowers. We've seen too much. After four years, this may be the single most open-minded show on television. We literally do UFO segments, not because we're crazy or had even been interested in the subject, but because there is evidence that UFOs are real and everyone lies about it. There's evidence that a lot of things that responsible people used to dismiss out of hand as ridiculous are in fact real. And we don't care who mocks it. The louder the Yale Political Science Department and the staff of the Atlantic Magazine scream, conspiracy theory, the more interested we tend to be. That's usually a sign you're over the target. A lot of people with impressive sounding credentials in this country are frauds. They have no idea what they're doing. They're children posing as authorities, and when they're caught, they lie, and then they blame you for it. We see that every day. It's the central theme of this show, and will continue to be. So that's a long way of saying we took Sidney Powell seriously. We had no intention of fighting with her. We've always respected her work. We simply wanted to see the details. How could you not want to see them? 
So we invited Sidney Powell on the show. We would have given her the whole hour. We would have given her the entire week, actually, and listened quietly the whole time at rapt attention. That's a big story. But she never sent us any evidence, despite a lot of requests, polite requests, not a page. When we kept pressing, she got angry and told us to stop contacting her. When we checked with others around the Trump campaign, people in positions of authority, they told us Powell has never given them any evidence either, nor did she provide any today at the press conference. Powell did say that electronic voting is dangerous, and she's right, we're with her there. But she never demonstrated that a single actual vote was moved illegitimately by software from one candidate to another, not one. So why are we telling you this? We're telling you this because it's true. And in the end, that's all that matters, the truth. It's our only hope. It's our best defense. Now, keep in mind, this was Tucker's segment after this press conference I just described to you. He even said in his segment that other members of Trump's legal team don't think there's evidence either and disagree with her claims. So here's what I think is happening here, and I think this is really important. And, you know, this is just obviously a theory of mine, but I think that even if you remove QAnon from this, it's, it's try to do that in your head if you don't agree with my theory that this is what, you know, this largely centers around Q. I think it does. But even if you just remove the idea of QAnon from it, the movement and what it's done to the Republican Party and to the right populist movement is still undeniable. It has a huge influence and it's almost indistinguishable in a lot of ways. They're almost indistinguishable from each other. But I think what Tucker Carlson did made it distinguishable. He drew a line in the sand. This, on some kind of symbolic or energetic level, was Tucker, I think, trying to throw his weight around as this influential, key, populist right figure in the MAGA movement. And that this was... Tucker's own attempt to put a roadblock in what essentially he could probably see was the full QAnon takeover of the populist right MAGA movement before Trump leaves office. Because after Trump, someone's going to need to jump in there and sort of take it over. Tucker probably wants to be that guy. But it's going to be hard to do if the QAnon shit totally takes over the energy. And if that keeps ramping up, and what Tucker essentially is saying in that clip is that he saw Sidney Powell like this rising star all of a sudden that became sort of this figure that represented the QAnon energy, sort of that conspiracy, carrot-on-a-stick energy that's been fueling one part of this Trump movement for a while. And he wanted to draw a line in the sand there and sort of reclaim that territory. I think that he realizes that that's not his brand moving forward after the Trump era. Maybe he could have indulged a little bit in some of the QAnon-y adjacent narratives at some times. You know, but he never really was a full QAnoner, even though he had people on his show that did indulge in QAnon things. But it was interesting because after Tucker did this unforgivable thing, and I say unforgivable, because what happened was after he did this, the QAnon movement turned on him immediately. And they immediately started to pizzagate him. They found out that he had visited Comet Pizza in like 2013. They found out that he had sent an email to Hunter Biden. They found out that 
he tried to get recruited into the CIA, which is hilarious because that's something that I've been passing around Twitter to be like, hey, why, didn't, why does anybody talk about this, that Tucker tried to join the CIA? They're using that against him now. So right after that segment, that was enough because Tucker rebutted Sidney Powell. That was enough to turn the QAnon movement against Tucker. And keep in mind, Q hasn't posted in multiple days at this point. At the time I'm recording this, it's been 13 days since Q has posted. But what happens is I think Tucker might have gotten a talking to. He may have gotten a talking to. Because Sidney Powell goes on Fox News and rebuts Tucker and says that she's never going to speak to him again. But she rebuts what he said on on his show. How do you respond to Tucker Carlson? Did you get angry with the show because they texted you and asked you to please provide evidence of what you're uh, alleging? Uh, No, I didn't get angry with the request to provide evidence. In fact, I sent an affidavit to Tucker uh, that I had not even attached to a pleading yet uh, to help him understand the situation. And I offered him another witness who could explain the mathematics and statistical evidence uh, far better than I can. I'm not really a numbers person. But he was very insulting, demanding, and rude. And I told him not to contact me again in those terms. So, so Sydney. We'll- now, Tucker then backpedals a little bit on his show and sort of kind of still walks the line and says that they're still waiting for evidence and he's still really hopeful that it's real and all this stuff. But he kind of backpedals and, and realizes the mistake he made because he was starting to get pizzagated. Like I said, the QAnon movement turning on you is bad news. It has a lot of energy, even without Q itself posting anything. Last night in a segment about voter fraud and investigations into it, we told you about Sidney Powell, the former federal prosecutor, and her claim that roughly 7 million votes were secretly changed on election night by rigged vote counting software. Well, in the last 24 hours since we did that, we've heard from a lot of people about that segment, including people in the White House and people close to the president. Like us, they have concluded that this election was not fair. Like us, they are willing to believe any explanation for what happened. Like us, they have not seen a single piece of evidence showing that software changed votes. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. It might have happened. It means they haven't seen any evidence that it happened. And by they, we are including other members of Donald Trump's own legal team. They have not seen Powell's evidence either. No testimony from employees inside the software companies. No damning internal documents. No copies of the software itself. So that's where we are. Sidney Powell came on Fox this morning and suggested we may not have to wait much longer. I fully expect, she says, that we will be able to prove all of it in a court within the next two weeks. Well, as far as we're concerned, that is great news. If Sidney Powell can prove the technology company switched millions of votes and stole a presidential election, she will have almost single-handedly uncovered the greatest crime in the history of this country, and no one will be more grateful for that than us. Dinesh D'Souza then tries to intervene and kind of work out the situation because I think, you know, conservatives like him probably see this as a really crucial moment where it's like, wait a second, if this is a split off, then we have real problems here. Like the whole strength of our movement is that we're extremely cohesively MAGA. You know, we're just always pro MAGA. Like, let's do this. 
Even the QAnoners, we're so big tent, we can even let in these QAnon crazies. But now, if you have this split, somebody like Denise D'Souza feels like he needs to intervene and play referee, which he did. I've been following this exchange between Tucker Carlson and Sidney Powell, and I'd like to sort of try to widen the scope of the inquiry a little bit, because it looks like you have these claims and counterclaims with Tucker insisting, hey, Sidney Powell, I asked you for the evidence, um, and you didn't provide it to me, and uh, I'm beginning to suspect that you don't have it. You don't need Sidney Powell to answer because these are questions that are open for investigative reporting. I mean, the reason we have a press in this country is to apply an independent lens, a critical lens, if you will, uh, on what is happening. Uh, and um, Sidney Powell's focus is obviously going to be on presenting evidence in court, but it is the job of journalists to check things out and present them in the public square. So just to backtrack a little bit, I think Sidney Powell getting so much attention in recent weeks, so much traction, and actually gaining so much power in the MAGA movement to the point where, because Tucker rebutted her, the whole movement starts to turn against him and all the QAnoners turn against him. And if you include Trump straight up retweeting that Ron Watkins segment from OAN and then also tweeting his own clipped video of it, this was possibly the most cuified era of the Trump administration yet. And that's sort of weird because a lot of this time I was thinking, well, Trump could do something really dangerous and get QAnon people to like take up guns and protest in D.C. or something like that. But hopefully this is the most cuified the Trump administration gets. And it's sort of weird because it almost seems like self-destructive. It seems self-destructive to let a crazy person who literally seems like she has brain damage, Sidney Powell, be the face of your legal team and then allow Tucker to be thrown under the bus by the people loyal to her. That seems like a really bad strategy moving forward. It makes me think that if Trump is pulling the strings on this, he's really losing his fucking mind. He's absolutely lost his mind. That's kind of eerie that he would be acting so goddamn dumb. Trump is usually not this dumb. And he's still hiding out. So it makes it even look dumber when he's letting all these people do all the legwork for him. And they have hair dye dripping down from their face, and they're talking about a global communist conspiracy that Hugo Chavez was involved in. I mean, it's just it just really makes you look like a fucking fool. It's absolutely... It's actually sad. It is. It actually is sad. But I think we're starting to see clear resistance from these other Trump surrogates like Tucker, like Laura Ingram, who on some level, they don't want to lose their power. President Trump gave the go ahead for the transition. You see it there. And as unpleasant and disappointing as these past three weeks have been to so many of us, as much as we wish things were different, this is where things stand tonight. Now, legal challenges continue in a number of states. Serious questions about vote counting, poll watcher access are outstanding. But unless the legal situation changes in a dramatic and, frankly, an unlikely manner, Joe Biden will be inaugurated on January 20th. Now, to say this does not mean I don't think that this election was rife with problems and potential fraud. And to say this does not constitute being a sellout to the conservative populist movement that I've been fighting for for, I don't know, 25 years. 
Uh, and it does not mean that I disagree at all with the president's right and obligation to pursue all legitimate legal challenges to this outcome. To say this constitutes living in reality. And if I offered you a false reality, if I told you that there was an excellent, phenomenal chance that the Supreme Court was going to step in and deliver a victory to President Trump, I'd be lying to you. Now, you've known me for a long time now, and you long, you've known me long enough to know that I will not lie to you or simply tell you what you want to hear. But what I will tell you tonight is that even amidst an election loss, there is an enormous amount for us to be hopeful about. And don't get me wrong when I say that Laura Ingram has like noble intentions for trying to make people face reality. In essence, what she's doing is she's trying to preserve her own brand because now she sees parts of this MAGA movement, the more conspiracy QAnon-y flavored parts as a sinking ship that she wants to get off of to preserve her own brand, staying ahead of the curve which is maybe what Matt Drudge was smart enough to do a couple years ago or a year and a half ago whenever his website started to turn anti-Trump. I think this is when Laura Ingram's territorial nature to preserve her own brand kicked in when she saw Sidney Powell sort of butting heads with Tucker Carlson and Tucker Carlson then getting pizzagated. Although I have no evidence that that was her thought process, I think it was fairly obvious that she watched this unfold through social media, online. You know, who knows if her and Tuckster, her and Tuckster, her and Tucker text with each other. Um, I'm sure Tuckster texts a lot of people. Their territorialness kicked in once they saw people like Sidney Powell being elevated and almost instantaneously to godlike status in the Q movement. She's Michael Flynn's lawyer. I mean, she's pretty much, you know, Michael Flynn's god in QAnon world. And I'll just give you a little overview really quick. Outlets leaning fully into sort of the more QAfied version of the narrative right now about voter fraud and actually have completely gone against Tucker, have taken Sidney Powell's side, include Gateway Pundit, OAN, Newsmax, War Room Pandemic, Epoch Times, even Breitbart is. Now, I don't know where Alex Jones and InfoWars really is on this, but I know that there's even fracturing happening within InfoWars. I think the hopamine, the carrot-on-a-stick conspiracies where it's like everything is going to be good. You just wait for Hillary Clinton's arrest. You just wait for Obama's arrest. The storm is coming. Nothing can stop what is coming. All these types of promises eventually get old when nothing materializes. Unless you have a completely childlike mind and you just want everything to be great all the time and you just keep getting tricked over and over again, you, there's no way that a smart person can keep getting tricked forever like that. Eventually, you're going to get sick of it. And people like David Knight at InfoWars did get sick of it when he completely threw out Steve Pachenik's crazy theory about the watermarked quantum blockchain ballots that was actually... A sting operation. Steve Pachenik is someone else who I think lost control of the QAnon movement and his ability to control or influence that narrative or that movement early on. Whatever Q was or is, 
Keep in mind, he shaped the original narrative a year before Q existed, possibly carrying it over from whoever was FBI in on, on 4chan originally. But I know that at some point, Steve Pachenik had some kind of sway or influence over the messaging. Whether he was posting his QAnon or not, his role in it was clear from the beginning. But at some point, it seems like he split with Q. Because now Q is saying other things. Steve Pachenik, going on the Oyen Shoyer show, which is the InfoWars Late Show, to say, and I already went through this on previous episodes, but I'll go over it again really quickly, to say that the entire election was a sting operation by the same Patriot insiders who are trying to fight the deep state, and William Barr is on the Patriot insider's side, that he worked with DHS to print secret ballots that were all watermarked with a secret radioactive isotope that includes a quantum blockchain signature on it, which could verify that they're not fraudulent and that the Democrats actually got caught red-handed in election fraud and they will be exposed, and this is all part of the plan, that they had to take a big L on purpose just so they could come back and show and prove voter fraud to beat the deep state for good. This is what Steve Pachenik claimed happened. He claims that the election really was a win for Donald Trump and that that's how it will be found out to be and that this whole thing was just one big smokescreen and sting operation by the deep state fighting insider patriots. Now, this narrative, of course, came from the same guy that I believe the QAnon narrative essentially originated from. Whether Steve Pachenik ever posted his Q or not, I'm not saying that. But I believe the narrative originated from him somehow. So what's interesting is you have Q barely saying anything themselves on these forums. But then you have the guy who essentially originated the QAnon narrative going out and trying to volley his own conspiracy theory that sounds rather complex, confusing. He's claiming he has insider knowledge and he talks to people on the inside who are part of this operation. It makes it all sound very credible if you're just someone who just slurps up anything that comes through InfoWars. And I think, you know, that the QAnon narrative in some regard originated from him. But what's funny is that narrative got immediately replaced by the Dominion voting system narrative. I even saw my, some of my right-wing relatives posting the Steve Pachenik narrative at first. The My Pillow guy, Steve Lindell, posted the Steve Pachenik video on Twitter talking about the quantum blockchains and how this was all a big sting operation. But even David Knight of InfoWars didn't buy it. And he came out and said that Steve Pachenik might be a CIA shill who's trying to trick us, which is a pretty wild little exchange that occurred on InfoWars a couple of weeks ago. But I think that one of the interesting revelations that we get from Frederick Brennan in, we don't really go into this in my interview with him, unfortunately, because we didn't have time, but in some of his previous interviews and just some of the other things that we know about the switch over from 4chan to 8chan to 8kun and how it appears that different parties maybe were vying for power with the QAnon identity and actually stole it from one another at certain points. This could also resemble something to that degree, that Steve Pachenik knows how much power he has coming out there with these narratives that he can feed through InfoWars, and he understands how much influence maybe he had over Q, whatever Q is or whoever it is, and that he wanted to sort of usurp control over 
you know, that little void because Q wasn't posting at the time. You know, all these things are possible, but what we know now is that Ron Watkins is directly going out there and pushing this Dominion theory, and seemingly the chain of events shows that he actually got the Trump people interested in talking about it and paying attention to it, which is really surreal. Really surreal. And keep in mind, he has claimed he has left Aitkun and that he's no longer a part of it. You know, Ron Watkins acted like Aitkun is the only place to get the real Q and that he verified Q on Aitchan. So that's sort of when Ron sort of took over the driver's seat in the sense that maybe he had stolen Q away from someone before that. It's hard to say. But in general, one thing has remained consistent with Q is that Trump is always one step ahead of the game. He's always in control. He's always good. He's never done anything wrong. And as long as that remains consistent, maybe that's all that's necessary for the Trump administration and some of their surrogates to kind of slyly promote it or to invest into it like Michael Flynn. But to me, that's not a good enough explanation. I think we need to go deeper and try to understand why the Trump administration has leaned so much into the Q movement. It's not just Trump himself. If you want to maybe explain it away with that too and say, well, Trump just retweets a lot of conspiracy theory stuff. So it's not surprising he would retweet QAnon stuff. You know, he just sort of samples all the conspiracy stuff like from Infowars or whatever, and then he just retweets or promotes what he likes. Sure, but there's something else going on with his people, his surrogates, people like Michael Flynn, people like Sidney Powell promoting Q and leaning into Q. Then we have other looser connections like Peter Navarro and Daniel Radcliffe seeming like they have some kind of interest in the Q movement. And then we have Trump himself completely leaving the door open when he's asked about QAnon, which I think he actually handled brilliantly. Where's that Trump? Where's the Trump, the Roy Cohen counterpunching Trump who's able to spin a QAnon question to his advantage and just completely dodge it without skipping a beat. That Trump is gone. Let me ask you about QAnon. It is this theory that uh, Democrats are a satanic pedophile ring and that you are the savior of that. Now, can you just once and for all state that that is completely not true so and disavow QAnon yeah. in its entirety? I know nothing about QAnon. I just told I you. I know very little. You told me, but what you tell me doesn't necessarily make it fact. I hate to say that. I know nothing about it. I do know they are very much against uh, pedophilia. They fight it very hard. But I know nothing they about it. They believe it, it is if a satanic like call to run by the deep state. This, let me just tell you, what I do hear about it is they are very strongly against pedophilia. And I agree with that. I mean, I do agree okay. with that. And I agree but with it But there's not a strongly. satanic uh, pedophile call. I have call no idea. I know you nothing about that. You don't know that? Okay. No, I don't know you that. You just and this and week. do you know that. Okay. It's kind of crazy, actually, how that Trump has disappeared for so long. And it's starting to get really creepy. That's really bizarre. So now, I mean, Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson are basically now pivoting to don't have false hopes about the election. And I think that is the closest we're going to get right now to an overt populist right rebuke of trust the plan. They're not outright bashing Q or QAnon followers, but that's essentially what they're saying. Don't trust the plan. There essentially is no plan. 
But if it works out, then hey, great. But don't trust the plan because you've been over-promised and we've gotten under-delivered. Boom, so far. The Kraken was insane hair dye dripping down Rudy Giuliani's face. So I think in some ways what we're seeing, even though Q has stopped posting, even though there's no Q person posting on Acoon that is directing the narrative, what we're seeing is a battle to maintain power or control over the populist right. And these people like Tucker and Laura Ingram, they don't want to let it get completely infected by the QAnon forces. But I think, I mean, honestly, it's too late. Even, you know, they they dabbled in a little bit. You know? More of the overall sort of more reductive conspiracy narratives. Not as much the Q narratives, but it's too late. They're not going to be able to get their power back. This has gone beyond them. This has gone beyond even Trump. Because as Q said in its post, post-POTUS world. Q is going to go beyond Trump. And I don't mean someone dropping Q drops on Acoon. I mean, whatever this movement is, however it's being steered, Q and on beyond Q. Think about it like this. The Q and on movement can even go beyond Q. And someone's going to want to take control over or have influence over the way that that movement goes and how they think. And who is that person going to be? It's not really Alex Jones anymore. Who is it right now? Is it still Q who's even having the most influence over that movement? I would argue actually it's not. I would say it's even more people like Praying Medic or some of these weird social media people who are having more influence. But that's actually something I think deserves further investigation is who is steering what is known more widely as the QAnon movement when Q is not posting and who is having the most influence in those narratives right now? Where does QAnon's energy go after Q? I think we're already seeing a very clear example of it. Is Sidney Powell, someone who represents a client who's fully leaned into QAnon, has jumped into the limelight, and is getting so, so powerful in sort of the more QAnon, more conspiracy fringe MAGA movement circles that Tucker Carlson and people like Laura Ingram are feeling threatened by it, and they had to push back on it. So what's actually really ultimately sad and pathetic is that in the end, Trump's legal team actually had to fire Sidney Powell to save face, because I think that that Tucker incident, uh, the way that people reacted to that press conference, it just was too much. And they fired her in an extremely diplomatic and careful way. And Rudy Giuliani is the one who wrote the statement where she was let go. The, the question I've got is, now we're, we're, we've been watching you pursue both uh, electoral fraud through the mail-in ballots, uh, electoral fraud as well through the software and the claims about Dominion, a break with Sidney Powell over the weekend. What's behind that, and uh, what is the motive, uh, the the reason uh, for the split between uh, Powell and uh, Giuliani at all? Well, I think it's because we're pursuing two different theories. Our uh, our theory of the case to get to the Supreme Court now in four places, and it's soon going to be in two others, and there'll be an overall lawsuit, is uh, basically. Uh, misconduct of the election by state officials 
in at least five or six different states in which the misconduct of the election involved deprivation of constitutional rights for the president. Now, I think that they did this just carefully enough to leave enough room open for QAnoners to believe that the Kraken is still going to come. It's all some big cover. Her firing was a cover or ruse to secretly fight the deep state to release the Kraken while Trump plays it cool publicly. And he had to sort of push her to the side to let her fight this shadow war because for some reason it's too risky to do it publicly. So this is one of the, another one of those shadow war narratives. Trump is fighting some kind of parallel shadow war. Stop overdosing on opamine. The world is not always a pleasurable thing where you're always going to get rewarded. You don't get what you want. Admit you don't know anything. I don't know anything either. I think we'd all be in a lot better place if we just all admitted we really don't know very much about the inner workings of these things. So let's just, there's just no reason to get invested in these hopeful narratives that somehow the conspiracy narratives have all turned hopeful with this QAnon stuff too. Conspiracy narratives used to be foreboding and actually used to make you not feel hopeful. This is an interesting thing where this sort of makes you feel really hopeful. Actual conspiracies that exist that we that are opaque to us, that we cannot see the inner workings of, that are done by the ruling class forces in this country that hurt us, that murder us, that poison us, that disenfranchise us, that take away our livelihoods. Those conspiracies are not filled with hope for a reason. Because that's the way the world is. It's not always pretty. It's not always hopeful. So just please remember that whenever you keep getting fed conspiracies or promises of booms or krakens or the storm or here's a carrot on a stick for you to eat, don't trust it. It's always a work. It's a scam. Just like Seb Gorka says, it's a scam. It's a con. It is. He's right about that, even though he lies and says... Michael Flynn didn't take a vote to Q. Michael Flynn didn't take an oath. Yes, he did, you fucking piece of shit neocon motherfucker. Oh, guess what? Seb Gorka is from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. But I forgot Trump is actually supposed to be anti-neocon, and we're supposed to believe in this reductive cartoonish narrative again that's supposed to be all hopeful and rose-colored glasses bullshit about how Trump is fighting the deep state and is versus the neocons in the deep state. I don't like that dumb bullshit. That's again filled with hopamine. Stop fooling yourself. The world is not hopeful. What will it take to show you that Rudy Giuliani is one of the most psychotic deep state players you've ever seen? He's right up there with George H.W. Bush Sr., Poppy Bush. George David Copperfield Bush. And yes, I am going, I promised you I would get to had a reverse conspiracy pill, QAnon people on Rudy Giuliani. But actually, I think maybe on some level, Rudy Giuliani realizes that if he leans too much into that conspiracy direction, if he opens the door too much for QAnon, then it could fall back on him because, oh, let me tell you, there are about a dozen conspiracy narratives already all set up, ready to go that have been around 
in oh, actually mostly left fringe conspiracy circles for decades. If Rudy does anything to shake that up too much, there will be uh, hell to pay for it. You think Tucker getting Pizzagated was bad? Well, there are a lot more things you can get on Rudy Giuliani than on Tucker. You know, in this whole time, I've been accusing Trump of hiding out, being a total pussy, not showing his face, being uncharacteristically silent, not taking any opportunities to go on the media, and sort of making fun of him for it, bashing him for it. You know, it is pretty pathetic. It's sad in a weird way. But just today was even more sad because Trump's last gasp after almost 20 days or a little longer than 20 days of almost total silence, no media appearances, his last gasp was a phoner. It was a phoner at a hearing done by Rudy Giuliani trying to convince these state electorates that the vote was fraudulent. And the arguments Rudy Giuliani was making were pretty weak. They weren't leaning as much into the Dominion voting systems conspiracies. He definitely dialed it back significantly, instead leaning into statistical analysts claiming that they can prove that it's fraudulent, and that doesn't make any sense. You can never prove an election is fraudulent by just bringing a statistical analyst into court to a jury. So the, the whole premise of Rudy Giuliani is talking about just sounds really dumb and sad. So to hear Trump actually validate Rudy Giuliani's efforts by a phoner appearance in court was incredibly pathetic. And actually, if I was a MAGA person at this point, I would have just, my heart would have been broken. I mean, this is the fight, a phoner into a courtroom where Trump sounded like, Trump did not sound fiery at all. I mean, this was probably the most fiery, actually, he's been the whole time. Let me play you the clip. And Trump phoned into a meeting arranged by Pennsylvania Republicans in Gettysburg on Wednesday. They cheated. It was a fraudulent election. They flooded the market. They defrauded everybody on ballot. These are all talkers. They intimidate. But these are not people that you're going to ultimately have to. They push you around. They pushed our poll workers out. Our poll watchers were pushed out of the building. Okay, some got back in, they were put in the pens. But these are not people, don't be intimidated by these people. But they're bad people, they're horrible people. And they're people that don't love our country. So we don't have to worry about four years right now. We have to worry about what happened on November 3rd and previous to November 3rd. And by the way, after November 3rd, when people put votes in, and they put them in illegally. They put them in after the polls closed. And one of our great Supreme Court justices made mention of that. And I can't imagine that any justice or anybody looking at it could be thrilled when they vote after the election is over. So I want to thank everybody very much for being there. I want to thank the state Senate, respected people, tremendous people. And you're doing a tremendous service for our country. And if something was done wrong, if this election was, was won fraudulently, and that's what happened, it was a fraud. And they went absolutely wild because we got far more votes than they thought possible. And they just stepped in the gas and they got caught. Just like they got caught spying on my campaign, they got caught exactly, they got caught doing this. So... I really appreciate it, and the country appreciates it, and 
We have to turn the election over because there's no doubt. We have all the evidence. We have all the affidavits. We have everything. All we need is to have some judge listen to it properly without having a political opinion or having another kind of a problem because we have everything. And by the way, the evidence is pouring in now as we speak. And I want to thank Rudy Giuliani for having the courage to do this. There are other lawyers that backed out because they were being screamed at. Rudy is a, uh, the greatest mayor in the history of New York, and there's a reason. He's got great courage, and he doesn't care. He wants to do what's right. But, you know, that doesn't sound very convincing to me. Sounds like he's thrown in the towel to me, still. And he's still not showing his face. Why would he just phone in? That's odd. He was actually supposed to appear in person. That would have made a much stronger statement. But no, he, he chose to do a phoner into the hearing. Absolutely pathetic. And Lou Dobbs is having a hard time with this. He's been one of the ones sticking by Sidney Powell really hardcore this whole time. And he's having a hard time with this because um, he lost it on a Fox News lackey who was just simply reporting back to Lou Dobbs on his little you know, cutaway on his show about he was reporting on the press conference, like really dryly, frankly, reporting on the press conference. And Lou Dobbs was like super butthurt by this like extremely dry report by his like cutaway Fox News reporter that he just like tore the kid apart like live on the air and didn't even get the kid a chance to like rebut him or anything. And I say kid because the guy looked like fairly young. He was like one of those field reporters for Fox News. So here's the clip of that. David Spunt is on location and has the very latest for, uh, for us. David. Hey, Lou, good evening. President Trump was supposed to be here in Gettysburg in person today. Plans changed. He ended up calling in on the phone, but a lot of supporters here as well today. President Trump did make that phone call inside. Lou, it's not clear if today's meeting was just to shine some light on some uh, potential irregularities and some problems or actually uh, change some of the results in Pennsylvania. Even though the president was not here today, uh, his two attorneys were his lead attorneys, Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis, both were here. Now, before Republican senators and House members from Pennsylvania, Giuliani introduced several witnesses uh, from Pennsylvania who worked as poll workers and canvassers. Uh, Mr. Giuliani continues to allege fraud in Pennsylvania. Outside the hotel, at least 100 supporters of the president chanted four more years. Others screamed 2024, hoping he'll run again. Interesting to note, though, that uh, there were witnesses here, but this was not a court hearing or a legal proceeding. There was no judge. The claims here today stood a different standard than those made in court under oath. And you know Giuliani and his team has taken uh, this case to several courts. Now, Giuliani and Ellis continue to fight in Pennsylvania, despite votes being certified in favor of President-elect Biden. Uh, the Pennsylvania governor made that announcement yesterday, uh, saying and certifying those results for President-elect Joe Biden. Also to point out today, Lou, that the witnesses here today were not under oath. They were not sworn in, but the Trump legal team did point out that many of them had submitted affidavits under the penalty of perjury. Lou? You sound rather dismissive of the expert witnesses, including PSYOPs, uh, uh, forensic computer experts that were testifying as to the irregularities and the anomalies of the uh, of the election. Uh, in point of fact, it was an informational hearing, uh, and uh, you do you are I'm sure aware uh, that the a federal uh, a state judge has 
intervene to temporarily uh, stop the certification of the vote in Pennsylvania as a result of claims by, amongst others, Congressman uh, Mike Kelly and Sean Parnell, both Republicans uh, declaring uh, in their lawsuit that the entire proceeding was uh, unconstitutional. David Spahn, thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. And then, you know, during all this, we have something else that happens that's very related to QAnon. The man who believes that his movement had a million digital soldiers and, frankly, sounds like he's essentially predicting the QAnon movement as we know it today before it even existed, around the same time Steve Pachenik dropped his original little Patriot Team counter-coup against Hillary Clinton video. Michael Flynn was pardoned today by Trump, which is not a surprise at all. Everyone knew that was coming. Well, joining us tonight by phone on the pardon of General Michael Flynn is his defense attorney, Sidney Powell. Great American she is, and this has got to be a special day for you, Sidney, uh, and certainly for the general and his family. It is, Lou. Thank you. It's really bittersweet because if the justice system had worked properly, we would not have had to have gotten this pardon. But we certainly appreciate President Trump giving it to General Flynn because this has gone on far too long. We now know that Judge Sullivan was just a political ploy. He's made a political game out of all of this. And it's just one of the most egregious injustices I've witnessed in American history. But just backtracking a little bit. Let's listen to a clip of Michael Flynn talking about these million digital soldiers that he had and why this, I think this is a really important and revealing clip because for a long time, I have believed that Michael Flynn isn't just invested in QAnon, that he may somehow be involved in steering it. And even if it has been people like Paul Ferber Ron or Jim Watkins posting as Q in these various forums, I always thought, well, maybe it's possible that Michael Flynn's people or somehow maybe him directly or people associated with Trump's people or surrogates, you know, their shadow campaign people are in touch with Ron or Jim Watkins or some of these other people who may be posting as QAnon. I thought that was also a possibility. Now, after hearing this digital soldiers clip that Michael Flynn went on this rant about right around the time of the election of Donald Trump, I think this is actually some of the strongest evidence I have heard that he somehow predicted the QAnon movement in a lot of ways. And we have an army okay, as, a, as a soldier and as a, as, a, uh, as a general, as a retired general. We have an army of digital soldiers. What we are now, what, what we call, I call them, because this was an insurgency, folks. This was run like an insurgency. This was irregular warfare at its finest in politics. And that, that story will, will continue to be told here, but we have what we call citizen journalists. Okay? Because, the, because the, the journalists that we have in our media did a disservice to themselves, actually more than they did to this country. They did a disservice to themselves because they displayed an arrogance that is unprecedented. 
And so the American people decided to take over the idea of information. They took over the idea of information, and they did it through social media. I mean, he's basically talking about some kind of counter-citizens, crowdsource intelligence, counter-coup movement that he kind of seems like to take credit for being behind. And that's essentially what QAnon has become, a controlled opposition, weaponized, sloppy thing to just wield against whoever, you know, thinks, you know, one political faction versus the other. But what is his deal with Q? I mean, that's just speculative. But like Steve Pachenik, he does seem to have some kind of leg up and prescience when it comes to the QAnon narrative itself. He does seem to have some prescience about the QAnon movement. That's very interesting. Q loves Michael Flynn. Sidney Powell has now basically become the face of the QAnon movement, even after Q has stopped posting for a while. But what's the deal with Michael Flynn taking this oath to Q on video, his whole family taking an oath to Q? What's the deal with that? Does he know who Q is? And if it it could have just been different people who stole the account away from various others after it transitioned to different forums, why would Michael Flynn, who should be intelligent enough to know that it really could be anyone posting, why would he trust it? Because even if, you know, it's an anonymous poster who could even just be having the password cracked, even just on that level, if someone cracked the password and it's an anonymous person, then you really never could know for sure what's real and what isn't. So what's the deal with Michael Flynn taking an oath to something like that? A former actual high-up military general who dictated what our U.S. soldiers were doing and probably got plenty of soldiers killed in military actions, plenty of civilians killed. Well, I know that he did because he is a war criminal. Michael Flynn actually co-wrote a book with one of the most psychotic and dangerous neocons under the sun named Michael Ledeen. Michael Flynn was responsible for killing Afghanistan civilians. Michael Flynn wanted war with Iran when he was in the Trump administration and before. Michael Flynn believes the Islamic faith overall is one giant terrorist sleeper cell that's designed to destroy the West. And we need to wage asymmetrical warfare against it. Michael Flynn said that it's not Islamophobic to fear Muslims. Michael Flynn's friend, Barbara Ledeen, who's also the wife of Michael Ledeen, actually solicited hackers on the deep web with Eric Prince's help of Blackwater to get Hillary Clinton's missing 30,000 State Department emails. Now, I don't know why Michael Flynn was targeted so hard in the Russiagate probe. I don't think that him lying to federal agents about meeting with that Russian envoy was a jailable offense. But look, regular people who aren't neocon war criminals get railroaded every day by federal agents in the Justice Department for lying or misstating things to federal agents and being accused of perjury. That happens all the time to people for who are probably good people. Michael Flynn is not a good person. Yes, it was politically motivated, the investigation he got wrapped up in, and yes, it was a hyperbolic, 
and 99% false narrative about Trump somehow being some kind of Russian puppet. But Flynn does some other really sketchy shit. His involvement with Turkey, for example, is extremely sketchy. And even if you're a MAGA person and you believe that, you know, America first, that alone should sketch you out about Michael Flynn. But it is really curious that someone like Michael Flynn would be so pro-QAnon. It is really curious that even someone like Michael Scheuer, the Alex station chief who was in charge of trying to hunt down bin Laden for the CIA, would also be so into QAnon. That's very odd. It's very odd that so many of these people have bought into a narrative or have promoted a narrative claiming that all these people from Hillary Clinton to Obama to all these people are somehow going to be thrown in jail for their crimes. And obviously that's never going to happen. That's not... Elites don't go to jail. Generally speaking, in a very rare circumstances, do actual elites or politicians ever serve jail time? But here's a weird theory. Maybe on some level, internally, Trump and the people most loyal to him and these people like Michael Flynn can't let go of the Q movement. They, they, they are too in love with it. Even someone like Jim and Ron Watkins, you know, and what it means for 4chan, or sorry, for 8chan or 8kun, and the power that it's given them, they can't let go of that. Why would they want to let go of that? But for some reason, the Q poster has sort of ran out of steam. But I don't think that Trump and his people who have sort of dove into this sort of QAnon world in the, as their final Hail Mary in such a weird, sloppy way... I don't think that they understand that it's a Frankenstein monster, essentially, of their own creation. It's another one of those examples of a feedback loop. It's like Trump is desperately doubling down and using various people in his legal team, various surrogates, to double down into this little sort of narrow conspiracy channel that's basically just based off a movement that's based off of him, that just feeds off of his energy. So I think in a weird way, this could sort of explain all the bizarre and mixed messaging and doubling down into total whack pack, Looney Tunes, armchair Q conspiracy shit show world. Even though Q is gone, right now at least, the whole effect that it's had on the MAGA movement, like the conspiracies that they adopt and all the narratives and the way they float, has actually infected Trump's thinking. He buys into them now, even though they're all disinfo-controlled opposition. I actually believe on some level that he does, that he is dumb enough where he cannot discern. Or he's just into the information war thing. I don't know. Maybe he's just into it for the tabloid stuff. In the same way he learned to, how to deal with tabloids before, like that weird incident with Selma Hayek and him, which you should look up if you haven't, which is pretty goddamn funny. And this brings me back to that Tucker Carlson break. I think another way to look at that is that if Tucker Carlson really does have Trump's ear and he feels that he's been steering Trump in a positive direction and he really believes that, then another way to look at that too is what I've already mentioned on previous episodes of Media Roots is maybe Tucker was essentially trying to influence Trump with that segment and be like, hey, Mr. President, you know, you're getting a little too bogged down by these conspiracy theories that are frankly baseless and we want you to succeed. We want you to look strong. We, we don't want you to look foolish. 
And perhaps that's what the double meaning of Tucker's message was on another level. But remember back earlier in the episode, I said that Ron Watkins claimed he was in touch with Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell. And we already have evidence that Sidney Powell just literally started repeating verbatim all of Ron Watkins' claims on that OEN interview. Well, we now have evidence that it wasn't just her watching that clip and repeating his claims. That now we actually have an actual filed affidavit in a court by Sidney Powell working for her own, I guess, parallel track legal effort that's not officially part of the Trump campaign. Some kind of shadow version of their legal battle. But Sidney Powell actually submitted to a court an affidavit with a testimony by Ron Watkins basically going into the Dominion Voting Software claims that he made on OAN Network. So what Ron Watkins was saying was true. So that was a time when Ron Watkins didn't lie. He was in contact with Trump's legal team. Well, we know that he is in contact with them now for certain. And they're actually working with him. They are working with a potential Q suspect and the guy who co-runs 8chan or now 8coon with his father, Jim Watkins. It doesn't get more ridiculous than that. Well, I guess it does if you, you know, guffaw at spelling errors and typos, because if you look at some of these affidavits that Sidney Powell has been filing, it seems like they're done by a woman who is on heavy amounts of benzodiazepines while she's typing out these court documents and submitting them to the court. I mean, they're riddled with errors, typos, names misspelled, like the judge's name is misspelled. It's nuts. Um, I, you really can't make this stuff up. But I hope you enjoyed this overview of where I think the Q movement has gone. But I also want to leave you with the question is, where can it go from here? If Trump does gracefully exit, which it does seem like he is going to do, he's signaling the transition. He's barely appeared on any media appearances. He even let go of Sidney Powell from his legal team. To me, that's all signaling that he's stepping away from leaning again into this conspiracy muck and he's going to gracefully exit, that he's actually pivoting away from going full QAnon because there was a moment there where he could have even leaned deeper into that. And, you know, he did retweet Ron Watkins, someone who Frederick Brennan has described as someone who technically has control over this point of who posts as QAnon. But what we can also gather is that Q is also pivoting away from leaning into that power, that political influencing power of embodying the persona Q. This was a major flashpoint event. I mean, to essentially allow all these conspiracy narratives to flourish during such a crucial time in the Trump, the MAGA movement, him potentially getting the election stolen from him, for Q to just drop the ball and disappear like this, it's incredibly interesting that, I mean, it makes more sense, Trump's emotional arc in this. That makes more sense. It does seem to reflect aspects of a personality, to refuse to let go, to refuse to admit defeat, to the point where even Tucker Carlson needs to pull away, throw Sidney Powell under the bus, and try to send some kind of message to the president to tell him to fucking stop it with these conspiracies and all this hopamine. 
But Q's stepping away from the role makes less sense to me. Even just for a troll, even just for a laugh. You know, I don't know the personalities of the people necessarily behind who's posting his Q. Can maybe glean something based on the potential suspects and how they behave, but like, why wouldn't they want to make a splash right now? Why would they step away from such an important political influencing tool at such an important time? That's the question that remains for me unanswered that I don't understand. Someone could really be making waves on the internet right now in the MAGA movement by posting crazy things about Q, promising more booms. But I also made a promise on this podcast several times, and I didn't forget that I would give the listeners tools on how to reverse conspiracy people who are either QAnoners or MAGA people who are into conspiracies, to reverse conspiracy them on Rudy Giuliani. And when I say reverse conspiracy pill, I mean give them conspiracies, insert plant seeds into their mind to get them to make it hard to pull their mind away from the idea that Rudy Giuliani is some kind of sketchy deep state player who does seem to be connected to some faction of the ruling classes and intelligence networks in this country. If you can just plant enough seeds in those people's minds, I think it'll actually maybe catch a little bit of fire, especially as we're turning the corner here on the Trump era. You know, Rudy Giuliani, in a very savvy way, he threw Sidney Powell under the bus too, but he did it in a very diplomatic way. He was lucky he didn't get pizzagated like Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson, for all his flaws and his phoniness, he did take a little bit of a stand. He stuck his neck out, probably to protect his own territory and his own brand in the long term, but he still did. Rudy didn't do that. Rudy did it in a very strategically diplomatic way. In fact, Rudy throwing Sidney Palander the bus is probably the cleanest, most optically impressive thing he's done out of the entire legal effort so far. To deflect away from himself any heat that people like Tucker were getting. Very strategically smart compared to Rudy's behavior and the other things he's been saying. So that's interesting. It's an interesting dichotomy is that Rudy knows how to optically get away with that, but not how to make anything that seems convincing or competent in terms of a legal argument of how to overturn these results. So is Rudy just scamming Trump? I mean, that's almost giving Trump too much credit, I think. And that's even giving Rudy too much credit as well, I think. But I will say that here are several talking points which you can use, and I will leave you with before we sign off on this QAnon episode, of how to plant seeds in people's minds that Rudy Giuliani is very sketchy and is connected to the deep state. And there is no silver bullet debunking talking point that the QAnoners have like they already have for Trump and Epstein. Because you would think, well, if the QAnoners are so obsessed with pedophilia and child sex trafficking, wouldn't they think Trump is part of this conspiracy because he was friends with Epstein? No, because they use a silver bullet talking point in the QAnon movement where they use like a video clip by one of the prosecutors involved in the Epstein case claiming that Trump was one of the only people that actively helped them. And because of that one clip, that's the, all the evidence they need that Trump is actually not part of this. They also use the story that Trump kicked Jeffrey Epstein out of Mar-a-Lago after he found out that he sexually assaulted an underage girl. That's a strange talking point to use, and it always was for me, because it essentially means Trump covered up a rape. 
and didn't report Jeffrey Epstein to law enforcement for raping an underage woman in his hotel. That actually sounds like it makes Trump complicit in the rape of an underage girl. So that it was always an odd one that they used, but that's also another one QAnon uses a silver bullet to knock that down. But here's the thing. With Rudy, there are no silver bullets. There are no debunking talking points that stand up. It's basically like a mountain of deep state dirt and grime that towers in the face of any, any potential ability to debunk it. And I'll just go down the list rather quickly because I don't want to spend too much time on this. Also, I don't want Frederick's own interview to be associated with any of my own crazy theories or conspiracy theories. And I should also state for the record, none of my opinions shared on this podcast reflect any of Frederick's thoughts or his own opinions. But here, I'll go down the list really quick. Rudy Giuliani had especially built tens of millions of dollars, somewhere in the neighborhood of $30 million command bunker built in World Trade Center building number seven that was supposed to be used in case of a terrorist attack or an emergency. And for some reason, he made the order to abandon that on the morning of 9-11. So that doesn't sound that weird, right? Okay. Well, I'll keep going down the list. Rudy Giuliani also set on record that he was told, he got warning that one of the towers was about to collapse and he managed to escape with his life, along with several other people in his administration. Well, the strange thing about that is he never told anyone else that the towers were going to collapse. The firefighters didn't get warned. They had no idea. So how did Rudy know this and why didn't he tell anybody else? Rudy Giuliani's law firm in the 1980s also represented Manuel Noriega, who could be argued to be a deep state asset of some kind. Rudy Giuliani's most famous aspect of his law career was the mob busting that he's credited for doing when he was district attorney of New York. Well, if you look into that a little more deeply, what you'll find is that it essentially was just a big PR stunt to give a slap on the wrist to the real mob bosses and to use several fall guys or scapegoats to basically clean the whole thing up and cinch it up and tie a bow around it. It was much worse than what you would expect out of some kind of plea bargain. Rudy Giuliani's mob busting was a hoax. In fact, Rudy Giuliani is actually connected to the New York mob. Kevin Ryan and other authors actually exposed this in some of their investigative pieces about how Rudy Giuliani made the call to destroy the World Trade Center crime scene before it got a chance to be forensically investigated. And, you know, Rudy talks an awful lot about the CCP in China and acts like China is the most evil country in the world. Well, guess who made the decision to recycle all of the World Trade Center steel to China to a Chinese company, Bayo Steel? It was Rudy Giuliani. And the reason that's a big deal is because there was never a forensic investigation done to the crime scene. The more maybe easily digestible story about why is because Rudy was rushing to reopen Wall Street and wanted to clean up the area quickly. Well, that still doesn't really explain why they destroyed all the steel and recycled it so quickly. That only explains why they removed the debris from the pile. It's one thing to remove all the debris so quickly from a crime scene. That in and of itself destroys forensic evidence. It's another thing to destroy all that forensic evidence immediately when there's really no reason to do it. That's something that's never been explained and that does implicate Rudy Giuliani in some kind of cover-up of the 9-11 attacks. Not only that, Rudy Giuliani was an integral flank 
of the Bush administration's war on terror propaganda. He was actually probably their best salesman of the war on terror before he left office. Remember when he spoke at the RNC and how many times he mentioned 9-11? So what was Rudy's actual role on 9-11? What was, his, what was he doing? Was he protecting New York? Or did he know strange things that nobody else knew and didn't pass these warnings on to the public? What's the deal with Tripod 2, the bioterror drill that Rudy Giuliani had planned for 9-1201 that was designed to stop a, a fake anthrax attacks with the involvement of FEMA? What was the deal with that? Because Rudy's association with bioterror is very, very convenient and strange. One of the only West Nile virus outbreaks to ever happen in the world happened in New York City. Right after Rudy Giuliani got all this money to study West Nile virus outbreaks. Him and Jerome Howard conveniently had a West Nile virus outbreak fall in their lap. Many people died. Rudy Giuliani made the call to then spray the city of New York with a cancer-causing chemical named Malathion. Rudy Giuliani then made millions of dollars off of the 2001 anthrax attacks. He formed a company, a joint venture with Sabre Technologies, who got no-bid contracts from the Bush administration to clean up anthrax, sometimes for $20 million a pop on one of the Brentwood Postal Buildings is what this company got. Rudy Giuliani, in a joint venture with Sabre Technologies, formed a company called Bio One, where Rudy Giuliani made this big PR stunt out of being in charge of cleaning up the site of the Florida AMI anthrax infection. Now, a strange incident happened where during that attempt to clean up that building, Rudy Giuliani got sued by the employees of the building because they claimed he was trying to destroy all of their files, that Rudy Giuliani refused to give them their archives. That's still a mystery. Nobody really knows what that was about. But there is an interesting tie-in here where Robert Packer, the owner of the Inquirer, was a very good friend of Donald Trump and keeps a safe in the AMI building, which is essentially blackmail material that celebrities can pay him to keep it out of the tabloids. Did Rudy Giuliani get a hold of that some material? Hard to say. But Rudy Giuliani attempted to buy the building. Why would you want to buy? So not only did Rudy Giuliani destroy the 9-11 crime scene evidence, he also attempted to destroy the Florida AMI anthrax infection evidence, where Robert Stevens got infected and died. Rudy Giuliani tried to destroy that evidence too, and only did he try to destroy the evidence, he tried to buy the building, which he successfully did. Why did he do that? What was his obsession with the anthrax attacks and purchasing that building? It's still largely a mystery, but it sounds like something that a deep state errand boy would be doing, or someone making money off of the back end of deep state activities would be doing. Because I believe the 2001 anthrax attacks wasn't done by a lone nut super patriot. I believe that it was an orchestrated act by many high-level members of possibly the Bush administration or aspects of the U.S. government. And that's not the end of Rudy Giuliani's strange history and ties with the deep state. Bernard Carrick, his chief of police at the time of 9-11 was one of the first people to come out and say that there's no chance that the buildings collapsed from explosions or anything like that. And they definitely collapsed from fire. He came out on the day of. So did Rudy Giuliani's partner, Jerome Howard. He came out on the day of and said the same thing. How did they know that so early on? How were they so sure that that was the case? It's interesting that they were so sure 
of that's how the buildings collapse without having any evidence. Bernard Carrick was somehow rewarded for his service on 9-11 and whatever propaganda he helped spin for the Bush administration that Donald Rumsfeld personally appointed him to be vice occupation governor of Iraq right under Paul Bremer. So when you see Bernard Carrick and Rudy Giuliani talking about the deep state, talking about the elites and the globalists, it's pretty bizarre because these people were deeply connected to the same neocon serial killer apparatus that we all know is the most evil shit in the world that comes straight from the Bush era. So how Rudy Giuliani manages to be on the side of this narrative that's not evil and that the QAnoners don't go after him is pretty remarkable. So I've just given you several data points that you can use to look them up online. If you ever want to reverse conspiracy pill people on Rudy Giuliani, flesh out some of those points I just gave you because there's a lot of stuff to go on there. And there's a lot more, too, where that came from. But thank you again for listening to Media Roots Radio. And I had no idea this was going to be another three-hour episode, but I'm glad I got all of this off my chest. I'm really glad I got to speak to Frederick Brennan and fill in some more of these puzzle pieces. I'm also glad I have more potential Q suspects. But I still think it's largely unknown where it's going to go and who's going to be steering it. And I think right now it's mostly a mystery of where it is coming from because it is not coming directly from Q. Ron Watkins seems to be behind a lot of the Dominion stuff coming out right now, but it was even existing before him. I saw other people posting a lot about Dominion before him. So I'm just wondering at this point, who is steering the ship? Why did Q step away from such a lucrative political influencing outlet? They have more influence than Drudge Report at this point. The Q identity has more influence than Drudge. That's like giving up a multi-million dollar political influencing tool. Why would they do that? That doesn't make any sense to me. But now that we have an official affidavit of Ron Watkins as part of Sidney Powell's shadow legal effort, then that's the closest we've gotten to any Q suspect getting directly involved in Trump's business. And that is very, very surreal. And yet, we still have no idea who Q actually is. But if you're a listener out there of the podcast and you're not currently a Patreon subscriber of ours, I'd like to encourage you to become one because... We just added a Media Roots Discord channel. And if you subscribe at our $10 tier on Patreon, you get access to that private Discord channel where you can talk to other Media Roots listeners. If you subscribe for $5 a month, you get access to our bonus episode every month. And we do one bonus episode every month that is available only to patrons. But as you go up in the different tiers, you get access to more things. Like the $10 tier gives you access to our Discord and our bonus episode and more things beyond that as well. Like the $20 tier, you can watch my film, A Very Heavy Agenda, unlimited download. And if you want to become a Patreon subscriber, you can do that at patreon.com slash Radio. And we couldn't be putting out this much content without all our subscribers. We're extremely thankful. I hope everyone had a good holiday and take care.